Has everybody got a coffee or a tea? Everybody ready to go? Okay, we'll get started. Um, it's fantastic to see so many of you here today. Thank you to all of you for joining us. My name's Emma Hughes, and I'm the Deputy Chief Executive at RP Fighting Blindness. I'm going to just quickly rattle through the housekeeping arrangements for the day. There are no fire drills planned. If it does go off, the staff from the venue are going to come and inform us which of the exits we need to use. But the staff team that are here from RP Fighting Blindness will make sure that everybody leaves and gets out safely. But fingers crossed, that won't happen. The toilets, I'm hoping when you registered, um, the ladies on the reception desk will have pointed out to you they're just in the corridor off this main room. We're having lunch at 12.15. Lunch is going to be served in the room where the teas and coffees were this morning. We'll begin promptly again after lunch at 1 o'clock, and then there's a tea and coffee break this afternoon. Hopefully when you registered, you all got your pack. Um, there's also an app that has the agenda and some of the information about the day on. In your packs, there is a feedback form, and we would be extremely grateful if you felt that you could complete that before you leave and hand it back in. It just means that when we do these events in the future, we've got your feedback to help us um, deliver a better day. And finally, if we are going to take photos throughout the day, so if anyone would prefer not to have their photo taken, if you could just raise your hand now so that somebody in the staff team... Excellent, excellent, good. Hang on. The staff team have disappeared. Hang on, Deborah. <laughs> OK, can you raise your hands again? Sorry. Have you got those? Yeah? Yeah. Deborah has taken account of that and she will come and make sure that she's got your details so that you don't appear in any of the images. So for any of you who might be new to the organisation, RP Fighting Blindness is a national charity which funds medical research with the aim of increasing scientific understanding of inherited progressive sight loss. We provide support and services for people affected and their families. There are a number of the staff team from RP Fighting Blindness here today, and I'm just really quickly going to introduce you to them. If you have any questions or concerns or queries throughout the day, please find one of us and we'll be able to help you. So from the services team, we have Denise, who some of you may have met when you registered. Denise is at the front in a pink cardigan. Uh, we have Matt Carr, again, who you may have met at registration, and Claire who, again, you may have met at registration. We also have some of our fundraising team with us. They're at the back of the room. Uh, Deborah, Alice and Laura. We have some volunteers from the My Guides uh, service, Guide Dogs My Guide service, Sue and Haley. Again, if you need any assistance throughout the day, please just talk to one of us and we will make sure that that happens. So we've got a busy and varied agenda for today. We hope that you're all going to enjoy it and find it of great interest. We have a number of speakers, workshop facilitators coming along, and I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of them for giving up their time to join us. You'll have opportunities throughout the day as we go to ask questions and talk to those people as well. We have exhibitors who've also joined us. All of the exhibitor stands are at the back of the room. Today, the exhibitors are ourselves, RP Fighting Blindness, 
and I've been reliably informed that if you want to purchase any raffle tickets or Christmas cards, as it's that season again, um, you can buy some from the RP stand at the back. Uh, exhibitors are East London Vision, South East London Vision, uh, Royal National College, Orcam, Oxite, and Second Sight, who are also delivering one of the workshops this afternoon and sponsoring this event. Please do make sure that you get a chance to look at the stands at some point today and talk to the exhibitors and ask any questions you may have. What I'm going to do now is just talk a little bit about what the organisation has done over the past year and also mention some of the things that we're going to be looking to do in the next few years. During this year, we've reviewed our research funding model and we've developed a range of programmes and formats that we hope will appeal to other funders so that we are able then to have additional funding that can support research looking for treatments. We've looked to increase our income during the year. We've done this by developing the fundraising model so that it can include collaborative incomes so that where we're working with other organisations, we can include that income. We want to develop fundraising channels that have a higher return on investment. Again, all of this giving us more money that's available to spend on medical research. We're looking at the creation of a patient registry and that will give us the ability as, as our organisation to remain the recognised voice for people living with inherited progressive sight loss. We've invested in raising our profile within the sight loss sector and within the medical research and ophthalmology community. We want to work more collaboratively in order to improve service delivery and create leverage in funding research. We've also developed relationships with a number of corporate partners, including Network Rail and a Kuwait oil company. We're hoping that these relationships will continue to develop over the coming years and enable us to not only raise awareness of the work we do and the people that we support, but to also identify new income streams. Back in May, we held our first very successful families conference, and that took place in Milton Keynes, which saw over 20 families coming together for a weekend where they shared experiences and gained information. And this is an area of support that we are planning to develop over the coming years. We're currently undertaking a piece of social research to investigate the employment challenges and prospects faced by people of working age. Some of you may have already been invited to take part in this research. The very final focus group is actually taking place in London next week, Tuesday the 12th of December in the evening at the British Psychological Society, which is up near Old Street, near Moorfields. If anybody here would like to come along to that focus group, please again just let one of the staff team know and we can send you the information. Through this employment research, we want to understand what individuals' experiences are around employment and how we can identify the barriers and challenges. We then want to be able to put in place strategies and solutions that can overcome these barriers and then that will inform the development of our future support services. But moving forward, what we really want to be able to do is to support more people across the UK who are living with inherited progressive sight loss. 
At the beginning of the year, we reviewed our existing support and information services, and that review has led us to change how we deliver our support. We've looked at putting in place a new regional delivery service model, which we're going to be implementing in the new year. And Denise, my colleague, is going to talk after me, is going to tell you all a little bit more about what that model looks like. So the last year has been hugely busy for us, and we're looking forward to an equally busy 2018 and working with all of you to ensure that RP Fighting Blindness continues to support those living with inherited progressive sight loss and that we can continue to fund the groundbreaking medical research which can lead to treatments. So that's it from me for now. I'm now going to invite De Denise up and she's going to tell you a little bit more about the services that we're offering. Hello. First of all, it's lovely to see so many of you here today, so thank you for making the, uh, the effort on a, a drizzly day. Um, as Emma said, there's really exciting times for us all at the, at the charity, and we're really looking forward to the year ahead. We've traditionally had some really good services that we have been able to offer in terms of supporting people. Um, one of the things, I think, is is actually our website. Um, we're always looking at, at what we can do to keep it up to date and improve it. But on, you know, when we're talking to people at various events, we often hear people saying that they've Googled information online and they've found this and is this true? And it's scary how often you hear things that are just misrepresented. So one of the things we're very proud of is our website and the trusted information that is actually on there. And I know talking from quite to quite a number of professionals out there that are supporting people, they do like to use our website as a tool, as a trusted form of information, not only about the conditions that we can support, but also lots of useful information on there about things such as inheritance patterns, explained in a nice, easy to understand way. Even I actually get to understand it a bit. Um, it also talks about how people can go about getting genetic testing, genetic counselling and that type of thing. Alongside our website, we also have something called our, custom, our customer care pathway, our patient pathway. And that also, as well as having useful information about some of those items I've just mentioned, has some very, very good information in there that you can use as a tool if you're having to talk to your employers or perhaps your child's teacher. There's sections in there specifically designed for those people and to understand how they can best support you and your family. If you haven't had a chance to have a look through our website, please do. We also online have an information and support group through Facebook. Now, we have our own charity Facebook group for any of you who, uh, who, who get in there and get, and get online on social media. Um, but we also have an information and support group that is made up from you guys. It's from family members, from people that are living with inherited progressive sight loss. And we have over 5,100 members, last time I looked, that are all on there 
posing questions that they have, and supporting each other, sharing hints and tips, as well as letting each other know where they can go for, again, good, trusted sources of information. So it's a great way to engage with other people if you haven't had the opportunity to do that. We also have um, our magazine, another good trusted piece of information. For those of you that don't receive it uh, when it comes out three times a year, we do actually have some copies here. And that's available in print, by email, or by audio. And we can actually send it out in braille to you as well if that's a preference. It's a great way of us engaging with you, just to tell you what's happening in the charity, uh, to tell you what's happening with events like this, some of the latest research news, and we can keep you up to date with that, as well as some of the, uh, the fun fundraising events that are going on and, and some stories from people that have taken part in that and letting you know how they found it, usually, usually with rather a great deal of humour as well. Um, we have something that's very, very close to my heart at the moment, and that's our helplines. We have uh, both a telephone and an email helpline, and they are run by volunteers that are all living with inherited retinal dystrophies themselves. And it's amazing to me how many times we speak to people at events or actually contacting the helpline for the first time that say to us, we've never spoken to somebody else that's living with the same condition as me. And we want you to know that actually we do have that that support, that service that's available to everybody. Not only those people themselves living with the conditions, but also family members will contact us, and also professionals, where, where we really are here for everybody. Our volunteers aren't medically trained. They're people that understand what it's genuinely like getting up every morning, living with the condition. The ups, the downs of everyday life. The fun, funny things that happen, the bruises that you often end up sustaining and and the funny stories of um i don't know maybe going into the cinema and i remember one of our volunteers saying they'd gone along and it was really really sort of dark they they got in there a little bit late the lights had dipped and went in and promptly sat on somebody else's lap which which luckily the person took in very good in very good humor so they do understand some of the difficulties but also many of them have actually been in the very dark place that some you know that that many people find themselves from time to time in living with the conditions so they are there to be a listening ear and also to signpost to more specialist services, perhaps for benefits. They can tell you exactly where you need to go, who you need to speak to. Um, benefits, PIP, employment support, um, or things such as um, if you have a specific condition where there's another organisation or a local charity that can actually help you face-to-face -face on the ground. They're a good source of information for that. As I say, we both have telephone and email helpline at the moment. So our telephone helplines are open from Monday to Friday, 9.30 in the morning till 9.30 in the evening, or you can email at any, at any time and we'll get back to you within two days. We also have along, sitting alongside that our telephone befriending service. And it's very similar. It's run by volunteers that are living with the conditions themselves. But it's slightly different and it brings together the social aspect of having a buddy uh, with the information and support aspect. And it's, the idea is we actually match somebody that is looking for a befriender 
to perhaps help with that bit of isolation that they're feeling, or just somebody who wants a regular telephone call, maybe once a month, with somebody who genuinely understands what they're, what they're dealing with. But it's not just to talk about their RP or, or their inherited sight loss. It's talk about holidays, hobbies, sharing hints and tips. And we all know that you actually learn so much from each other when you get together and chat about the hints and tips and things that, oh, I found this, this really works well for me. It's amazing how much we can actually learn from each other. And also information days such as this. We have our information days that we hold around the country and our annual conference that's held here in London each year. And they make up some of the largest gatherings of, of patients and, and, and service users actually living with the conditions. And it's lovely to see some of the professionals that are working with our, uh, our families coming along here to find out a little bit more. And the idea of these information days is to come along, have an opportunity to listen to information about what the charity is doing, to hear from some of the medical experts on what the latest research is, and actually have them locked in this room so you can ask your own burning questions directly, get answers directly from the horse's mouth. But also to meet each other and share information and chat over a coffee and pastries and some lunch. And we would very much encourage you to do that. We also have the opportunity to hear from some, some volunteers that are actually living with inherited retinal dystrophies themselves who are happy to come along and share their own journey. And we find that at events like this, it's one of the, the things that people often feed back to us, how helpful they've actually found that. As Emma mentioned, there's a lot of changes happening in the charity. So they're the support services that we've had all along. The exciting thing is moving forward, um, you'll see on, uh, on, on the slide, my title is Volunteer Development Manager. It's why I'm so passionate about supporting our volunteers on our helpline and befriending service. But my role, literally as we speak, things are changing this quickly, that my role has actually changed <laughs> this week. Um, and I am going to be um, one of the uh, regional service managers that are out there uh, up in the northwest and northern ireland and my colleague matt at the frontier is our regional services manager for what's your what's your area central it's a central region so it's north wales east midlands and west midlands so it's, coastal it's rather large region but it <laughs> gives us the opportunity to get out there and work far more closely with families that are living with the conditions and with local organisations that are there to support you. We don't for one minute think that we can address all of, all of the concerns and all of the support that you actually need by ourselves and we're very keen to get out there and start to learn more about what is it that you're actually looking for and how can we best support you in your own area. So we're very excited to look forward to doing that and uh, obviously we're are, are the areas that we're looking at that we will be recruiting and um, on a rolling program a regional manager for London and the South, uh, London and South East, for the South West and then somebody else for the Scottish areas. So we're really excited and when that happens please do keep in touch with us, keep, keep looking at the websites and keep in touch with us to find out about the events that we're hosting because without you helping us to understand how we can best support you, then we're not going to be able to, to do that to the best of our ability. What I'd like to do now is to pass you over 
to in introduce you to Bavini and Rachel. And they've been kind enough to come along and talk to us about their own journey. So, Bavini, would you like to? Hi, I'm Bavini Makwana, and today I'm going to share a story with you um, on when I was diagnosed. <clears throat> I'm so happy, I'm so free, love to be independent and do as I please. Succeeding in education, we're turning 18, driving towards passing our tests with ease, gazing at the twinkling stars at night, watching the colourful butterflies fluttering their wings, seeing the beautiful sunrise and set each day, and appreciating a lovely warm smile. Life was wonderful, life was superb, and I was gonna achieve great things in a while. Off to uni, I should go to study my passion in business law. Although in an unfamiliar town, adventures I shall create. But there was just one thing. Why can't I see in the dark or in dim lighting? Maybe it's just a stress and it will pass. Clumsy incidents I kept on attracting. Ouch, where did that lamppost come from? Ah, where did that bollard come from? I'm sure they keep moving just to hit me. Whilst reaching over for a glass of drink, but completely missing everything else and spilling and making a mess bending down to pick up a drop pen and completely missing the corner of the table. Ouch, my forehead. Anxious months of, in, of doctor's appointments, I waited. Can somebody please just tell me, why have I been so clumsy? How can you fix me? When can I totally see? You have RP, retinitis pigmentosa. A degenerative eye condition, there is no cure or treatment. Struggling to keep up my pounding head, my tears from falling onto my cheeks. The words just faded away, I, I couldn't hear no more. Mixed emotions of confusion, shock, Fright filled my motionless and devastated numb body. How has this happened to me? Why has it happened to me? Is it just happening to me or everybody? Questions overloaded my mind. Will I ever be able to go to uni? Will I ever be able to drive my dream car, a red Lamborghini? What would my friends and family think? You have, there is no cure for this, for this condition. You may notice vision loss within years. Months could pass, or you may face deterioration in weeks. The horrifying words kept playing over and over and over in my mind. 
and I couldn't control my angry, painful tears from falling onto my cheeks. My whole world had turned dark. My life had changed, and my failing eyes had changed my life forever. That was back in 1997, and even two years down the line, I still felt like that. I felt lost, powerless, and I felt out of control of my own life. I eventually found a little bit of support from a local rehab officer who got me into local college evening courses, which I did do and completed. Along the way, I did get married. I've got two beautiful girls, and which came other challenges of picking and dropping them from school. As most of you know, with RP, your vision does deteriorate. So challenging, finding the school gate, finding your own child amongst the playground. And yes, I have embarrassingly grabbed onto somebody else's child when I thought it was mine. <laughs> and also finding my way back home after I have dropped them. I've spent countless number of times walking past my house because I couldn't find my own house anymore. Around 2010, when I moved into a different borough in London, my rehab officer did put a yellow strip on my front door and found me ways with my white cane, which I was another battle I had to come to terms with, that I was able to pick and drop my girls from school and could find my own house. I came across an event similar to this where I came along and that was almost 12, 13 years that I was diagnosed. I actually, I actually came across other people with RP, people my age. Usual appointments at Morfields consisted of people way older than me and I just felt surely I can't be the only young-ish person with RP. At this event, I came across the charity, RP Fighting Blindness, and I, and I got to speak to other members who were going through the same thing as me. And I felt that was the first ray of hope I felt for absolutely ages. Following that, going out to more events and meeting new people, I wanted to offer something back, so I'm actually one of the volunteers on the helpline and I started volunteering for RNIB as a telephone facilitator. This gave me a lot of confidence, and because it was in the comfort of my own home, it actually made me feel as if I was doing something valuable and important. This confidence grew, and I was actually in a position that I wanted to actually go out and volunteer. So through the Thomas Buckington Trust, I volunteered my time as an eye clinic support services officer at a local eye clinic hospital. I then set up a social group in my local borough for blind and partially sighted people to come together to learn hints and tips, to, to get information from guest speakers, but also to go out on trips. All this, I then became aware of a job that I thought, it sounds fantastic, but can I actually do it? How can I actually work knowing that I've got a deteriorating eye condition? Which employer? is gonna employ me. I applied for the job, because deep down I knew I could do this. It was just the traveling and the physicality of the role. To my surprise, I got the job. And then there was a whole set of other stress. Oh my God, I've got the job, how do I turn it down? 
I came across other sources of support, like access to work, and my needs were adapted where my job could be fulfilled with great success. I'm not saying now that I've got a job, life is easy. I still have those embarrassing moments, but I've just dealt to cope with them. If I take you back a few more years, I was trying to go shopping, buying a dress in a local clothing store. The way I shop is I do need to touch and feel, feel the fabric, touch the material, um, shape of it. So I'm walking around this short shop, finally found the rail where they might be selling these dresses and I'm feeling, I'm feeling around and I came across something which I wasn't sure was a short dress or a long top. So I sort of tried to feel towards the bottom to get an idea and to my horror, it turned around. <laughs> I was so embarrassed, I was so mortified and all I can hear is the lady saying, what are you doing? And I couldn't answer her because I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to run out of there as fast as I could, but of course, I didn't know where the exit was, so I couldn't even run out. So I do come across instances like that, but I've just learned to cope and deal with them and, and, and laugh because life is about laughing, even if it is at yourself from time to time. I want to finish off by saying I've learned that you don't need to have sight to have vision. So go out there, find your vision, and be the best that you can be. Thank you. Hello, I'm, um, I'm Rachel Stevens. Um, for about 10 years, that's caused laughter because of S Club 7. I think I'm out of the woods. Um, I am not her, uh, but um, I'm, I'm a trustee for RP Fighting Blindness. Um, I'm, also, I'm also an RP patient, um, and I wanted to talk a little bit... Uh, I, I just love Barvini's story. I think it's absolutely wonderful, and there are similarities with mine, of course, um, but I also want to talk about the kind of uniqueness of the journey and how mine might differ a little bit from, from some of the things she was saying. Um, and really want everyone in the room who might be, you know, especially newly diagnosed to know that your experience will also be different to mine and Barvini's. And it's about finding your own way in a very different climate, a very different uh, research atmosphere. When I was diagnosed similar to Barvini back in the 90s, um, we were told, go home, go blind. There will never be a cure. They couldn't even, there wasn't even the perception that at some point science might advance because the whole idea of gene therapy was just non-existent. And of course, now we have a world where a lot of countries are, do, are doing gene therapy and a lot of money is going into it. The process is slow. The process can often be very difficult and very costly, but we are in a different era. We are in an era of treatment starting to happen albeit you know, relatively slowly at the moment. So people being diagnosed now, you're entering quite a different world. Also tech side, you're, you're entering a completely different world to the one that we were diagnosed into. 
I myself, um, my main sight loss, I was diagnosed at 14, I'm 40 now, and the majority of my sight loss has been in the last three years. So three years ago, I started using a cane, my peripheral vision came in. Before that, I would say the main aspect of RP for me was night blindness, which I just kind of ignored and bumbled around and didn't really you know, take much notice of and had that kind of devil-may-care attitude to. But it wasn't until my peripheral vision started coming in that I thought, okay, I need to do something about this. So that was, for me, the first time that I would say RP truly affected me physically. And what I'm getting coming to terms with now is how much it affected me emotionally over that time, the anxiety about what would happen when I went blind. What would it be like? And I'm from a family that doesn't really talk about it. It wasn't really out in the open. And I would just encourage families now if you can, if you're brave enough to talk about it with your, your, uh, your family members and have those open discussions about what it's like for that person, it's, it's enormously helpful. It's really, really helpful because it takes away that shame. There will be, obviously, pain. There will be difficulties. But if the person affected can feel that they've got that open dialogue with family members, it can really, really help. So my journey, really, I would say, into sight loss started in the last three years. I'm aware just from the last few years that, that tech stuff that I was learning about three years ago, you've now got a completely different set of tech stuff even a few years later. We've got some of them here at the exhibition. I tried the Oxite uh, glasses and was really amazed at what they could do to enhance my vision. The whole area of augmented reality, which is what they will tell you about if you go and talk to them, is really, really new and growing. So it feels like we could do this whole talk in six months' time, and there'll be a whole load of other things that, uh, that might be there to support you to do what you want to do. So I would say that first. Of course, the flip side of that is that getting diagnosed now can feel overwhelming in a very different way. The overwhelmingness I felt was the isolation, the lack of treatment, the lack of support. There is now a lot more support out there. There is a lot more tech out there, but it will take you time to get your head around it, and it will take you time to find out what is right for you. I'm, I think most people, you know, are in a learning process most of their lives with that. Um, I'm in the process of perhaps going over to a guide dog at the moment. That's quite a long process. When I had my cane training, that was at least a six-week wait from social services. I had to find the right person. They had to respond to me. All these things take time, but gradually... I built up my network of support, and that's been enormously helpful. Of course, one of the most helpful ways was through the charity, meeting other people like me. I, um, I run a group called RP London. Um, if those of you, you can either email the charity to get on the mailing list, or you can, if you're Facebook users, you can look um, on, it's kind of a, a subset of the, of the main RP group. It's RP Fighting Blindness London, and we organise a few events a year. And it is a whole range of people from those newly diagnosed to those sort of wise old elders, I would say, who uh, maybe have lost you know, a lot of their sight and can, can always say to the, to the younger or the newly diagnosed, well, this is how I got round it. There's nearly always a workaround for everything. And that was one of the most brilliant things that I found out. Yes, you might have to do things very differently. You might have to do things a lot slower. But there is usually a workaround. So it is this kind of sense of perpetual challenge that is set by RP that has enormous emotional side to it, has an enormous practical side to it, but also offers a bond with other people affected by it like no other bond. I would say now the friends I've made through uh, this network, through this charity, are some of the people that I can be the most open with, the most emotionally intimate with, because they absolutely get it. 
And I would say that that has increased my life satisfaction at the same time as RP has undoubtedly challenged it. So I suppose the, the culmination of my talk, and I will be around a little bit afterwards if people want to come in and talk to me, is really that we, we are in an enormously shifting world. So um, take advantage of what you can find out there that you feel will be supportive. Get onto the Facebook groups. There are loads now, um, and you can be sharing the stories, the worries, the concerns, the tips, all of that stuff, and finding people who are in pretty much exactly the same situation as you are, and suddenly that isolation and often that shame that can come and that trauma that can come from diagnosis just starts to be lifted a little, and I found that to be enormously helpful. Thank you so much to Bavini and Rachel. If anybody, does anybody have any questions for Bavini? If you could just hold on one moment, because we'll bring round a, a roving mic. Paula? Okay. Um, thank you both of you. That's really good talks, and, and I think we can probably, a lot of us, relate to that. My question was for Bavini. Um, what was the job? I will be showing that a little bit later because oh. I'm speaking again, uh, but it's with East London Vision. Fabulous. Thank you. Anybody else got any questions for Bivini and Rachel? Okay. Right. Unfortunately, we've um, Andrew isn't able to be with us today, so... Um, so we've missed out on his story, but um, hopefully, hopefully we'll... Uh, get Andrew to come along and perhaps chat uh, to all of you at one of our other events. So, so do keep a lookout. So next, I would like to invite up um, David and Paula. Uh, David and Paula are, bo are both um, iClinic liaison officers. David at Moorfields and Paula at Great Ormond Street. So what we'd like them to do is just to come up and share a little bit about uh, a little bit of information about the role that they fulfil and how they can actually offer support. Thank you. Um, hello, good morning. Um, for those of you who can't see me, I'm actually going to step away from the mic because if any of you are like me, I end up staring at the speakers at events like this because that's where the voice is coming from. So I am here and hopefully that helps everybody know where the front is. Um, so I'm an iClinic liaison officer. I'm here with a couple of hats on today because I've also got RP. Uh, like Rachel and Bavini, diagnosed earlier than them. Um, I'm a bit older, but I was three when I was diagnosed uh, at Great Ormond Street in the late 70s. But similarly, go home, get on with it. There wasn't a huge amount of information, um, and my parents were left very much floundering, uh, which is why I was very keen to do the job that I'm doing now, is to kind of help families so that they didn't have that. So I've got my RP hat on, I've got uh, my family hat on, uh, being a child of parents that going through it, um, and then also I'm an ECLO. 
So ECLOs come in lots of shapes and sizes, and we're all called different things depending on where you work. So there might be family officers, you might be, there might be volunteers, pals, local societies, but we all do very similar jobs. And we're there as very much glorified uh, signposts. Um, so I'm a very good signpost, I hope. Um, and I also do lots of emotional support and making sure that things like Rachel was saying, what is out there? So all the technology that's out there, where do you go to find out these things? So I talk to families and patients, and we have lots of information that we give out, helping to guide people towards the right places to start looking. Um, and there's free apps on your phone, and then there's very expensive kit. So if you're in work, it's about how do you get those, that information if you're in work or at home through funding, um, making sure that these families are uh, getting the right benefits, um, making sure that schools, I mean, that's where I come in because, of course, it's all children. So for me, it's school age um, and nursery age and babies, um, but making sure that they've got the right information in their education placements. Um, and that can be difficult because it's about you know, depending on the school, depending on funding, there's lots of cuts, all those things, but it's usually a workaround. And like Rachel said, I say to families all of the time, and I say to patients all of the time, it's not that you can't do something, you just have to do it in a different way, and it's finding those workarounds. So very much what I do every day, all day, with my families is finding ways of getting those children doing the things that they want to do. Um, so obviously we have a, a very large, um, Mr. Henderson couldn't be here today and he does send his apologies, um, but he spoke at the last meeting uh, which I was unable to go to. So Mr. Henderson runs our RP clinic um, and we obviously see all patients that come into GOSH and make sure that they, they learn about this organisation, um, but also others um, out there in their locality. Um, so between us, we, we run that service. Um, so I'm going to hand over to David, who actually works at Moorfields, as um, has been said, so is seeing the older population, um, where I'm doing the younger ones. So I'll hand over to David. Hello. Ooh, I'm there. Right, yes, my name's David Samuels. I'm the ECLO at uh, Moorfields City Road. And um, I also have RP, so I'm not sure anybody here doesn't have RP. We've all got RP. So a little bit about my background. Um, I, um, RP was diagnosed with me when I was a, a child, and I've always been quite severely night blind, but... Uh, throughout school, it didn't really affect me during the day. And then gradually, as I'm sure most of you have experienced, started to experience the same things as Bovini, bumping into things. Always, I would say even now at my age, and I'm now in my 50s, the night blindness is still the biggest issue that I encounter. Um, I don't know if any of you looked at the agenda today and you thought, hang on a minute, this is finishing at 4 o'clock that's December, it's going to be dark, how am I going to find the tube station when I get out? You know, it's all those kind of things. Um, 
But in my 20s, I had a chance encounter and started going to a local group for visually impaired people where I lived called Visually Impaired in Camden. And I think it's still going. And through that, I started to meet other people because at the time, I felt I was the only person in the world with this condition. Never met anybody else. And um, through Visually Impaired in Camden, I met the rehab worker who worked in Camden, and he introduced me to a sports club, which is still going and I'm still very much involved with in London, called Metro. So Metro Sports was a, a major um, support for me and um, it just in integrating with other people and finding that, you know what, blind people are just like anybody else, they just don't see very well, you know. So um, from that, I then started training as a rehab worker. So I'm guessing um, many of you will have encountered rehab workers working for your local social services. They do the mobility training and the skills training and that sort of thing. And so I worked in um, social services for many years doing that in um, Brent, northwest London. And then about five years ago, my sight was getting worse. I was thinking, how am I going to get around the streets of Wembley <laughs> and find all these houses where people are living? And the job came up in Moorfields as an ECLO. It was still a newish sort of role. And so I've been working in Moorfields at City Road since then. And as um, Paula explained, the main role for the ECLO is just making sure that patients who are experiencing sight loss know about the services that are available outside the hospital, helping people to get in contact with organisations such as RP Fighting Blindness. Um, but also, because of my background, my particular concern is making sure that people are linked up with their local social services and the rehab workers in their area. Now, of course, it's patchy, so some services are better than others, and um, you do what you can. We certainly also liaise with um, major uh, charities such as the RNIB or Guide Dogs, and where we know about them, local organisations such as the one I was involved with, Visually Impaired in Camden. So it's all about information. And um, I guess where it differs slightly from Paula in that it's adults, so, and also my background as a rehab worker, what I'm really concerned about is empowerment, giving people information and the opportunity to take control and uh, to find what they need for them. So um, a little bit about Moorfields. I'm guessing that many of you know it and have been there. Of course, it's unique in, well, there are other eye hospitals, but it's just eyes. So it's unlike eye clinics in general hospitals. That's all we do. And, of course, we have a lot of clinics. So whereas in a general hospital you might find there's one area, that's where the ophthalmologists are all are, we have lots of different clinics all running at the same time, all in different places, different floors in the hospital. Um, last year, we did um, the Certificate of Vision Impairment, which I, I may talk about just in a, in a few minutes. That's the key way of referring people to um, local help. Um, we do a lot of Certificates of Vision Impairment at Moorfields, as you might imagine. We worked with over 100 different local councils, and we did certificates of vision impairment for over 100 different consultants at Moorfields. 
So it's, it's quite a, a large number of um, patients that we're working with. Also, Moorfields have a, um, quite a few satellite clinics. So that's clinics not based at City Road, but based in hospitals in and around London and the southeast. And we have other eye clinic liaison officers that cover those satellite clinics. So the main point of what we do at Moorfields is these certificates of vision impairment, because increasingly it's the way that the local council will get involved with people, and that's where people can get some help in the home on a long-term basis. Um, and increasingly, uh, with cuts that have been going on in social services, councils are getting much more sticky about wanting the paperwork. Um, so we do a lot of that kind of stuff. And of course, a lot of it is encouraging people to, to take that step because people are, are anxious about it. Do they really want to go down that road? So I spend a, quite a lot of time talking to patients about uh, the benefits of getting a certificate of vision impairment. And I should say more specifically to do with RP, um, we of course have clinics in all sorts of different areas of, of sight loss. We ha have mainly two genetics clinics um, and uh, they're run by uh, Professor Webster and Professor McLeedy's. There are other consultants that will also see patients with, with RP, but um, I would say of all the referrals that I get, a quarter come just from those two genetics clinics. So I'm seeing a lot of people with RP and other genetics conditions, um, macular conditions and things like that, so all sorts. Um, and I thought just to, to finish, I would talk a little bit about a patient that I saw this week. Um, I'm not saying this is typical because, to be honest, everybody really is different. But um, a, a lady came to see us. Initially, it was just a discussion about should she do the, the certificate of vision impairment or not. She was a bit anxious about would it, what would it mean. Would the employer have to find out? Would she get trouble at work because of it? All that sort of stuff. So we started talking about that. And then um, we started talking more about RP. And she was diagnosed with RP 10 years ago. She's now 36. And a little bit like Rachel was saying, at the time it wasn't really affecting her. She was sort of managing. She tried to put it to the back of her mind. And she just got on with it. In the last few years, things have got a little bit worse. She was telling me about how when she comes to Moorfields, it's only once a year as you know, most people with RP, you, you don't come that often. And she dreads it every year because they check the site, they measure the peripheral vision, they do all those kind of things and they explain it's getting a bit worse and she's got to confront it again. So we talked a lot about, you know, the feelings and the experiences and, and what would it mean in the future. And during the conversation, I explained that I had RP and she told me she had never spoken to anybody else with RP ever. And she didn't know about RP Fighting Blindness, so of course I gave her some information about the organisation. Um, and I don't know how long we spoke. Actually, it was probably an hour and a half or so, and because we, I have the time, and, and we talked a lot about it. And she went out. I don't know whether she's going to do the certificate of vision impairment. I don't know when I'll next see her. You know, She hasn't got another appointment for, for 12 months, but at least she's aware. 
she knows what's available and she's spoken to somebody else and fingers crossed fingers crossed thank you very much <laughs>
at Moorfields, and they did a similar sort of job. And then um, that was all stopped um, oh, several years ago. And so then there was nothing for a while, and then it built up again. Although um, we've always had a volunteer in one of the genetics clinics who's supported by RP Fighting Blindness, Barbara Norton. So many of you may have, have met her over the years. But um, I think the, the history of provision in hospitals has definitely been very patchy. But hopefully um, there are other organisations. The RMIB is very hot on promoting ECLOs and they employ a number of ECLOs in hospitals. So I don't know, Paula, have you got anything? Um, just that you might not be aware of them. So, and, and it's not, I think a lot of hospitals now that do have an ophthalmology uh, clinic do have access to something. It might not be an ECLO, it might have a different title, a family officer or PALS, like I mentioned, but unless, depending on the relationship between that job and the clinic, it's not that necessarily you're being told as patients, and it might not necessarily be on the website. So this is, again, I think this is where sometimes communication breakdown, um, but the likelihood is that I know John, you know, like John Radcliffe, they have an ECLO, but you, you just might not have come in contact with them. So it is worth asking your consultants, and I think there's probably more than, than there are less. Hi David, I'm Tom Saunders, uh, I'm a teacher and work with children and young people with vision impairments in East Sussex. So I've got a specific question for you and then kind of a combined question for uh, you and for Paula. The first question is you mentioned about these satellite clinics that run in kind of the southeast. For families in East Sussex, it's quite long journeys up to Moorfields and Gosh. Are there satellite clinics that run in East Sussex that you could make me aware of? Um, there's, there's not a Moorfields clinic in East Sussex. I think the furthest south we go is Croydon. Okay. Yeah. But Sussex Eye is very good and um, there's a new clinic at Shoreham which is the Worthing one. Um, okay. But we would, at gosh, with children we would perhaps share care so we might see them whereas we'd normally see them six months or every four months or three, three times a year or twice a year we'll share with the local so that we do a one-year visit and, and that the local hospital sees the, the, uh, the other. Um, so it, we try and fit in with what families want. Some families really want to come to us or go to the paediatric team at Moorfields, um, and some are quite happy to stay local. So it's about meeting the needs of that family as well. Yeah, of course. I guess it's about families being more vocal because I think sometimes they express things to me that yes. maybe they're not expressing to you. So it's about the open dialogue, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're fairly lucky in that we'll always, you know, discuss, is this too much? And it might be that things like the EDT test that we do, and we do quite well uh, with children, um, is that they can't be done anywhere else, and we need to be repeating those or repeating particular photographs um, that can't be done locally. But as much as we can, we're aware that, you know, it's normally more than one child you're trying to trying to orchestrate everything and, and we realise that people have lives so families, I encourage I think I, we have quite an open relationship with our families um, but I'd encourage that, that they come and speak to us Okay, that's helpful, thank you and just quickly, the combined question was just around the reports, we found it historically very difficult to get reports sent to us so those clinical reports inform what we do as teachers is there maybe a point of contact that you could guide me towards 
So to, to receive what the clinical the clinical is. reports, yeah. Yeah. So I put out lots of emails to our VI teachers across the UK, um, saying that if they have um, children on their books that are Great Ormond Street patients, if they let me know by email with just date of birth and initials because of data protection. I'm actually adding those on so that you're automatically CC'd in, which we've not been able to do before. It's something that I fought for in my eight years at GOSH. Great. Um, so as well as the GP and the parents being copied into letters, that they are going directly to the VI teachers as well. Um, and if you're not getting those, you only have to ring me up, leave me a message, drop me an email. They're sent out the next day. Um, so I'll swap details with you. Okay, again, that's really helpful. You logged in. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question for, um, for David, actually. Um, I was diagnosed with RP in my 30s and had my driving licence revoked in my 40s. Um, I was going to Moorfields annually. Um, I realised my case may be mild compared to others, but when I last went to Moorfields, they just told me that there was no point in me going back because... When there is a trial available, they'll find me, but I'm just kind of um, wasting my time going there because there's nothing that they can tell me. And I was also a bit surprised, although I was going there annually, they weren't giving me a visual fields test. And I'm sort of feeling a bit abandoned now because they've told me that I shouldn't go back. And I'm wondering, I live in um, Royden in Essex now, and I'm just wondering if there's a local clinic that I could be attending because otherwise, I feel like I've been lost in the system. Um, well, it's certainly not unusual for people with RP to come every year. Um, and as we've already said, there's no treatment. So, so that's not unusual either. Um, and again, visual fields, it's pretty standard that, that that's what gets done. It might be the individual consultant. I mean, that's one of the things that I've learned working in Moorfields is that the individual consultants are very individual <laughs> and they will make their own decisions. But there's no I was, reason I was why seeing you can't um, Professor ask Andrews, actually, who I. Um, to be referred back. Uh, you could go to one of the satellite clinics in East London, um, but you are seeing largely the same people. That's, that's kind of the point. So. I would say no. If you if you want to come back, then maybe speak to your GP if you've got a good GP. Um, and I can't speak, obviously, for the for the consultants and the hospital policy in terms of who they prioritise. But um, if you weren't, maybe it would be good to get referred to one of the genetics clinics. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, hi. Um, uh, my name's um, Kevin, Kevin Ellis. Um, I just really wanted, wondered if you would be kind enough to say something about the range of um, experiences that people have in terms of the progression, you know, in terms of what, what you come across, uh, in terms of the progression of, of RP. And I ask that because, uh, to be honest, I feel a little bit different to some of the stories I, 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 I hear. Um, here and what I've read in terms of um, my own situation where, you know, I, I went pretty well totally blind by the age of about 20 and I never remember 
when I was a child, uh, not having, uh, well, you know, my peripheral sight not being really in place, place at all. So I just wondered uh, about, about that, if that's okay. How long's a piece of string? Um, it, it's so difficult, and diagnoses can be made very, very early where they wouldn't normally be picked up. So from the scans that we're doing now on children, they're showing no outward signs of anything wrong with their vision. It's only through screening um, that we're picking up. So you, you've started the di you've made the diagnosis, you've st almost started that thought process, but it might be years and years and years. For some, it might be tomorrow. Um, you know, gone are the days, thankfully, when you were told a diagnosis, as I was, or my family was, in the 70s, why, by the time I'm 13, I won't be able to see at all. Um, now, I have upper left peripheral in my left eye, which I still find very useful. Um, but it is just so different for everybody. I mean, you just, there is no pattern. Um, if there's a known gene, you can then start looking for patterns in progression. So if you know your gene and then know others with the same gene, that may be slightly different, um, but it, it's just a different experience for absolutely everybody. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think well, one of the things I would say actually is that I don't see that many patients who really are totally blind. You know, uh, generally speaking, I, yeah, that's because I think I think there's two two reasons for that. One is that. Um, maybe uh, people in your situation have already got the information. You know, they've already been down that road. It's not something that's um, new, and that may or may not be true. I mean, I, I think that may be an assumption that's being made in, in the clinic, and so maybe people are missing out. And, and the other thing is that, uh, again, from the hospital's point of view, um, with, with people who've really got virtually no sight there probably isn't much for them to do from the hospital's point of view. So again, they might have been filtered out, you know, and they'll concentrate on people where they're still thinking about is there some sort of treatment we can offer or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I, truthfully, I, I don't see that many people. I don't no. know about you, Paula. No, not, no. not completely. No. Thank you. Uh, very quick question. I have no idea how you go about getting a genetic test um, because there's new treatment for certain forms of RP. I just read that today in the magazine. Uh, I know all about genetics. I did it at university. It's fascinating. But um, I don't know how to get genetic testing, whether it's worth having done. What hospital are you under? Sorry? Are you under a hospital still? Uh, no, I'm like the lady in front who's been kind of signed off and told to go blind on my own, which I find very disturbing and upsetting. And I'm 62 now. <laughs> and seem to be angry all the time. It could be something to do with it, couldn't it? Well, I always say that people with RP have the Bolshe gene. Perhaps it's the angry <laughs> yes, gene Yes, as well. I try not to be, but yeah. I fail. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think get referred back to your original clinic, so through your GP, um, and then um, ask them directly at that appointment. And I know, similarly to the ECLOS, part of an NHS kind of guideline is that every ophthalmology team has an ECLO. Similarly, that every uh, ophthalmology team has a genetic counsellor. Um, so, you know, again, I think there's, there's, there has been gaps, and uh, like you've said, that every consultant is different, and they're all, uh, uh, you know, have their own kind of way of doing things. But get referred back um, and asked to be signed up uh, for genetic testing. 
Okay, I, I, I did. Mean, I, I, I have come across this um, with one or two patients. The trouble is, again, I only see patients who are patients at Moorfields, and we've got genetics clinics and genetics counsellors. But I did see one who was a private patient, so came through in that way, and he was finding, I think it was Sheffield, that they were not offering any kind of genetic testing or anything like that. And all I can say there is get yourself ref referred to one of the genetics clinics at Moorfields, because they'll do it. I was at Moorfield originally, mm. like 20 years ago, and oh. then I was kind of told, oh, give us a call if you want to come back, and then went to the local ophthalmologist and got signed off locally in York. Yeah. So, what, go back to a GP and then start from there and work yeah. outwards from there? Yes, GP. Okay, thank yeah. you very much. I mean, it's not only Moorfield. Manchester have a yeah. good service. Yeah, that's very helpful, thank you. Right, so we're moving on to what we've called an information share session. And this is with local sight loss organisations who are based in London who are going to tell us a little bit about what they do. So, Jonathan, do you want to come up? And um, Bavini, you're going to do Elvis, are you? Yeah, okay, great. Do you want to do it from the table? Do you want to stand? How do you want to do it? Yeah, right. So first of all, we've, we've got Jonathan, who's come from South East London Vision, who's going to talk to us about that organisation. Morning, everybody. I'm Jonathan Ward. I work for South East London Vision. I've uh, been there for about six months. Um, equally, I could tell you about embarrassing moments, if you'd prefer. I've had a few of those and probably uh, create a few more by the end of this um, little talk. Okay, um, so Selvis, South East London Vision, we have a, uh, we're an organisation which covers six South East London boroughs, so don't switch off if you don't live in London, we're happy to help anyone who comes across our door, so people from other regions and other places come along to our, some of our events. Um, so what do we do? Um, I think probably we've heard about the shifting environment, so for us, we like to talk to people about some of the services and things that are out there and try and fill in some of the gaps that are, you know, some of the gaps that people fall into. And we're very lucky to have excellent rehab workers in our patch, so we have that sort of relationship where we can chat to someone and actually then make sure that they're talking to their rehab worker or the other services. So we like to direct people in those different, and vice versa. It works both ways. Um, so... For the last two years, we've been providing sporting and leisure events. So some of the things that we've been up to, we've had people climbing uh, rocks, we've had people ice skating, we've had people doing, well, all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Um, I think in January, we'll be doing audio-described tours of ancient Egypt. Uh, that's in a museum, not actually going to Egypt. <laughs> um, and various theatre trips as well. So, whereas um, we're actually allowed to touch the uh, people in the dresses this time, <laughs> it's legitimate, <laughs> and they yeah they encourage you. Um, but yeah, and the other thing I just mentioned very briefly is our information service. So we have a one, an opportunity for people to come in and just chat to us on a one-to-one -one basis and just learn things, or just for us just to listen. Um, so we're in a position where we can do that at the moment. And part of that is we. 
very much want to help people with things like tablet computers. We've all heard this morning about apps that can do all sorts of things for you. Um, so we want to show people how that works on a one-to-one -one basis. So we, even, to, even at the level of just showing someone how they can turn the voice on on their phone or use the magnification. And we just feel that on a one-to-one -one basis that that's probably the good way to do it. So that's it from me. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is I will have um, a pile of leaflets at the back. So I'm hoping that you're all too polite not to leave without taking one of my leaflets. So you heard me speak earlier that I got employed. Um, the organisation was actually called East London Vision, who's part of the Thomas Parklington Trust. East London Vision supports blind and partially sighted people in the seven boroughs of East London, which consists of Havering, Barking and Dagenham, Redbridge, Newham, Tower Hamlet, City of Hackney and Wortham Forest. My role is I'm an activities coordinator, so I organize activities and meetings uh, where guest speakers come along and share information about any topic that the groups are interested in, from benefits to local services in their local borough, whether it's housing, money matters, managing their site loss, whether it's other health conditions, or just generally anything that the groups are interested in. Um, the activities that I organise for the groups um, are generally ideas from the groups. So we go out to museums, we go to the seaside, we go and visit um, local libraries, where we'll, you know, anything and everything that the groups would like. But we also provide a little bit of a daring activity. So we've done rock climbing, we've done kayaking, uh, we've taken our members um, indoor skiing um, and you know we do other things like gentle based chair exercise, yoga, dance, fitness, you name it, whatever the members want we'll provide it uh, in an accessible way and just this week we actually went horse riding which I actually did. Um, completely scared, completely petrified and I don't know why I even signed up for it but it was made so accessible that I don't know what I was scared about. So we do have things for all sorts of types, whether you've got a daring streak or you like something a little bit more or less challenging. We have an information accessibility technology advisor called Graham Page who will come out to your home if that's easier or you can come to the office. And he will share any concerns or tips that you may have that you want to know more about regarding your iPad, your iPhone, maybe a scanner, or your microwave, or your television, or a washing machine, anything technology-based. He will help as best as you can. If you're on the market for a new phone, but you don't know what the best one is for you, he will have a chat with you, find out what you're going to use it for, how you want to use it, and he will actually come out with you to a store and speak to the sales assistants because you know what they're like. They can try and sell you things that you don't really need. So he can actually offer that service as well. 
I work closely with the members, so more often than not, it'll be me that you'll be meeting. So, you know, if you had a question that wasn't activity related, but you just wanted to find out information about other services, I generally keep myself up to date because I do spend quite a lot of time chatting to our members. I also forgot to mention earlier, so where I explained that could I drive a car being sight lost, but I did actually. I actually drove my Lamborghini. It wasn't red, or it could have been, I don't know, uh, <laughs> but I actually rode it. You know, there are so many things out there that have been made accessible for us to joy, enjoy a normal life as our sighted peers, that it's fantastic. And the more and more you sign up to all these different charities, other organizations, you get to know more about them. So we are also at the back on the right, and you can sh give us your contact details and we can give you our newsletter which comes out every quarterly that shares what we are doing, what you can sign up to, what you can enjoy. I mean, we've got quite a few pantomimes coming up. We've got lots of Christmas meals, um, dinners and lunches coming up. I also wanted to share, finally, before I finish, is I also run workshops. So workshops where people can come along to learn different skills. Skills that they may have lost due to sight loss or they never had the opportunity to learn in the first place. So previous ones have included learning how to apply makeup, uh, do your hair, or skincare routine. So we had uh, professional people coming in and sharing tips and actually encouraging you to how to apply. Uh, we've had workshops on self-defense and there's a workshop actually on this Saturday uh, around the corner from here, and that's about confidence building. Whether you're newly diagnosed or someone that finds it quite difficult asking for help, um, asking for the right type of support that you may need. For example, you might have been in a social environment and you need someone to read the menu or you want someone to take you to the ladies or the gents, but you just feel a little bit embarrassed or you don't know how to ask or even if someone's around you. So we've got a workshop where you can ask the right questions and encourage and give you confidence in asking for that help. But at the same time, it's a workshop for sighted companions. So you can bring up to two maximum, uh, maximum of two carers or sighted companions who can learn techniques on guiding you because I know our family think they're the best at guiding us, but they're not really. So um, it's a workshop for the, um, that as well. So again, we're at the back. So if you want to know more about East London Vision, the workshops or anything else, come and find us. Thanks. Okay, so has anybody got any questions for Bavini or for Jonathan before we move on? No? Yes, okay. Oh, we're just, we're just getting, no, that's good. Microphone is just heading this way. Where was it? Here. Here. Hello. Hi. Hi. It's for, actually it's for both, I can't, I can't remember the name of the man um, with the orange, Jonathan. Jonathan. So it's really for both of you. I'm thinking you're possibly offering the same thing. Um, so with these activities and um, help with finding apps or um, tablets or doing activities, do you have to live in those areas? I'm assuming East London with Bavini, you, yeah, I couldn't come to any workshop, because your workshops sound interesting, for example, but I live in Oxford, <laughs> so. Yeah.
around the corner, but they're open to anyone. I mean, previously I've had people come from Liverpool, Manchester, Leicester, Milton Keynes, all over, and across London. And for East London Vision, we're not going to turn anyone away. Um, so if you're not living in our within East London, it's not a major issue. And that would be exactly the same for us as well. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, great. Any other questions that anybody has? No? Okay. Well, we are a little ahead of schedule. So we're going to go to lunch 10 minutes early. So I'm sure everybody's tummies are pleased about that. Have you all had a nice lunch? Managed to stretch your legs? Well, I'd like to move straight into um, welcoming uh, our medical speakers for this afternoon. And first of all, we have Professor John Marshall, and alongside John is uh, Dr. Maria Mostagy. And both of them have very kindly given up some of their time to come along here to talk to us about the research that, that's happening. Um, John is, as well as being um, uh, he's a, one of our trustees on, uh, and, and has been for many, many years, a trustee for RP Fighting Blindness. And anybody who has been in the world of, of RP for any length of time, I'm sure will have met John before. Um, obviously an e uh, eminent, eminent uh, member of, of the clinical um, fraternity in the terms of RP. And he's going to uh, speak to us this afternoon about an overview of the research what's happened in the past and where we're actually going in the future. John, thank you. Well, my PhD tutor, many, many years ago, gave up science and started write, writing science fiction. And he was the guy that invented the Cybermen for Doctor Who. And one piece of advice I'll never forget was, if you're the speaker after lunch, it's the graveyard slot, don't turn the lights out. So you'll be very pleased to hear I'm not going to show you any slides, but I'm going to watch you all. Now, I'm very gratified that we have at least one guide dog here. Why? because guide dogs are incredibly perceptive. When the speaker has spoken for long enough, they start yawning. <laughs> and if the speaker persists, they start passing wind. <laughs> so we won't get there, and uh, thank you for bringing the guide dog. Okay, well my talk is, where were we, where are we, and where are we going? Now, I just wanted to give you a little bit of history before I even start. I, unfortunately, was born at the beginning of the war, and I remember all the newspaper headlines in 1953 when <coughs> um, Francis Crick, James Watson, and a forgotten lady, Rosalind Franklin, described the structure of DNA. And you all know that DNA is the thing that controls all of us. So 1953, that group really cracked it. It was totally dependent on the work of Rosalind Franklin, and she was ignored. The two guys got Nobel Prizes, and the poor lady that did all the work and had all the basic science there, okay. 
30 years later, 30 years later, the first eye gene was described by Shomi Bhattacharya. Now, it was a bit of a cheat because it was uh, X-linked RP, so he knew which chromosome it was on. But nevertheless, it was a big achievement. 50 years later, 2003, we have the Book of Man. We know what the various genes do in relation to controlling our bodies. So in 50 years, we went from how the hell does the system work to the Book of Man. And it's a bit like cracking the Enigma code because we now know what those various base pairs are, are doing. Okay, 64 years on this year, the first gene therapy received a vote of approval from an American Food and Drug Administration panel. So if you think about that, in just 64 years, we've gone from knowing nothing to actually having an approved, well, the panel's approved it, the FDA haven't yet, gene therapy. So we've gone a long way in scientific terms relatively quickly. And that gene therapy, is, I'm sure is going to be described in more detail a little later, is for recessive disease where we have to supplement the gene material. But now we have a new technique called CRISPR and an enzyme Cas9 in which for the first time we can start treating autosomal dominant diseases. So you guys are living in a very, very exciting time. I've lived in a very exciting time and I look forward to things in the future. I started at the Institute of Ophthalmology in 1965 working on lasers and lasers has only been worked on in the physics lab in 1960, so it was just sort of four years on. And when I started, people with diabetes had a problem. And if you had diabetic eye disease, you had two choices. One, you went home from Moorfields and you went progressively blind. Or two, we sent you to the Hammersmith Hospital where you had part of your brain, the pituitary, destroyed. And that had a mortality rate of between 12 and 14%. Now, 1972, we had lasers. And so that all went away. And so that shows the power of science. And I've been really, really lucky because I was in right at the very beginning and was involved in developing the anti-diabetic uh, laser. But also, I invented the eczema laser that you'll see on the television now, let's get rid of spectacles, okay? Now, the reason I bring that up is because having invented it, it took 10 years from the invention to the American Food and Drug Administration approving it, it cost, this is 30 years ago, $25 million to pay bureaucratic regulators to tick boxes on a clipboard, not quite. And now 50 million people have undergone that treatment. 
Why am I not worrying? Okay, well, I've had perfect vision all my life, and I just have a long sight of old age, and don't listen to the guys that want to sell you lasers for that treatment. It doesn't work. Okay, so where were we? Well, in 1960... Um, if you had RP, you went, the doctor said, I'm sorry, you have a very serious condition and there's not a lot we can do, so you can come back if you want to, but you don't have to. I started working with Alan Bird. We were both students together. And we managed to get money out of the American new organisation, RP Fighting Blindness, and we built up a multidisciplinary team at Moorfields, which first of all looked at familial genetics because we knew RP was genetic, and we had a lovely worker there, Marcel J. And Marcel J spent hours finding relatives you didn't know you had, finding relatives you didn't want to know you had, <laughs> tracing people that had the disease in this country and then took it to the far-flung elements of the empire. Little group in South Africa traced to a group in Southampton. Group in America came from Cornwall. So we began to build up this international network of where the genes started and where the genes went. And then we had a lot of work on defining the RP patient. I don't know if any of you here were there in those early days where we gave you horrible tests. We give you electrophysiology with horrible lenses on your eye. We would take blood samples ad nauseum. We would give you psychophysics where you sat in the dark and we flashed lights at you. There was a wonderful episode called Flashes and Flickers which I abbreviated to flashes and knickers. Um, but this was trying to define what sort of RP did you have from how you behaved. Enormous amount of work. Turned out when we really got to grips with proper molecular genetics, a lot of that work wasn't terribly helpful because one patient will behave like this, one patient will behave like that, but they both had the same gene. So it was good, it made us feel good, but it didn't help too much. But it did improve our techniques. So, for example, those horrible glass lenses were replaced, especially for children, with foil electrodes made out of recording tape. And that was much more comfortable, and everybody was happy there. And all those blood samples you gave, well, just remember, every time you gave a blood sample, one of us had to give a blood sample for a control. And I can't tell you the number of times I'd be on the telephone and someone would come in and stick a needle in my arm <laughs> and suck blood out. <laughs> Hang on, I gave some this morning. Yes, 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 but we need a bit more. And some wonderful workers in those days, Professor Geoffrey Arden, who was the electrophysiologist, and I remember one occasion at Moorfields, I won't tell you the name of the lady, we had a very busy morning, Alan Bird had gone for lunch, and there was one lady left we needed blood from. And I said to Professor um, Arden, Jeff, would you mind taking some blood from this lady? Okay. He went into the men's room, 
and he came out with a big pile of paper towels and he started to place them over her bosom and down her legs. I said, Jeff, what are you doing? Oh, I'm not very good at this. When I take blood, it goes everywhere. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to thank you all for participating in those early trials. Okay. Where were we? Well, we did all that work and we knew that RP had recessive, where you had to have a problem from your mother and your father. We, we knew there was X-link where you inherited the disease from your mother, and we knew there was autosomal dominant, which cropped up in families every generation. And fortunately, the autosomal dominant was a relatively mild disease. Could we offer any treatment? No, not at that time. And so people went to countries, you know, because our doctors don't know, and you can get a treatment in Russia, or you can get a treatment in Switzerland, or you can get a treatment in Brazil. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. People from England went to Russia to have something called NCAD, or ultrasound treatment. Didn't work, but it was a way of the Russians of generating hard currency. The Russians that could get out went to Italy to have hyperbaric oxygen. The Italians went to Brazil to have Laotril. The Brazilians went to America to have Evangelical Council. <laughs> and the Americans, they came to England to see Julia Owen in Bromley to have bee stings. None of these things worked, but they were, you were desperate and you wouldn't listen to us, the, the scientists. So we then came up with hard currency and we told patients, you have to ask the question, when is a treatment an experiment and when is an experiment truly a treatment? Okay? So... What did the early concepts of treatment consist of? Well, you know, in your eyes you have rods and cones. And the rods are the things that let you see at night and give you some peripheral detection. And the cones are in the centre and they enable you to read and see colours. You have around 120 million rods in each eye and around 6 million cones. You only have about a million connections in your optic nerve. So just think about that for a moment. You've got something like 130 million things you've got to put into a millimeter cable with a million connections. I hope it wasn't that bad. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. So normally in parts of the body under stress like your skin the cells are replaced. So your skin is about five days old. If you look at the person next to you, guess how old they are. Don't tell them or me. But basically, the bits you're looking at are dead. The surface of the skin's dead. The surface of their hair is dead. It's only their lips and the surface of their eyes that are alive, and that's about five days old. So. In stressful situations, like 
radiation from the sun, the idea of the body is to junk it, replace it. Just think of the skin on your backside and the skin on your hands. One's beautifully smooth, hopefully, because you don't expose that, or most of us don't. And your hands are sort of 20, 30, 40, 50 years of uh, aggression. Now, there's a very special problem in the eye because the eye starts as an outgrowth of the brain and brain cells don't divide. You're born with the number of brain cells that were formed during embryonic development in the womb and the fate of brain cells is to die off as you get older. So rods and cones don't divide. You can't manufacture new ones. But they have this special trick. And some of you will have heard me say this before, but if you can imagine me as a, as a rod, a little bit sort of fat rod, uh, but instead of legs, I've got a giant packet of biscuits. And within that packet of biscuits, I've got about 1,000 biscuits. And every hour of every day, I'm making five to 10 biscuits about my waist level. So why don't I grow taller and taller and taller? Because the cells I'm standing on every morning when you first wake up bite the ends off of your rods. So whilst the cell doesn't divide, the light-sensitive membranes are dividing because the system can't sustain them because of radiation, etc. And that whole process is the big problem for AMD. But in RP, it opens up possibility of another potential form of treatment. If you think of animals, lizards, if you accidentally hold a lizard, and as kids I guess most of us have, and the tail comes off in your hand, that's not too much of a problem because the lizard will grow a new tail. Or you can pull an arm off and it'll grow a new arm. Because there were genes in evolution which allowed for damage and regeneration throughout life of these organs. Now, we are so sophisticated, apparently, that we've lost, those genes are still there, but they're not working. But let's think of a trick for a moment. If you're a rod, you're in the womb, and you've got a whole load of genes which say, grow an outer segment. Okay, so I want you to keep growing until you've got about a thousand biscuits in there. And then another set of genes come along and say, stop, don't grow anymore, make a few, eat a few, make a few, eat a few, make a few, eat a few. So in RP, when you've lost rods, sorry, the whole cell goes. If you lose the cone out of segment, the bit that does the light detection, the cell goes into hibernation. So all the rest of the cone, its energy unit, its nucleus, its connections back to the brain, they're all still present. And so there are groups now that are saying, well, look, why can't we reactivate some of these, what I'll call clock genes, they're actually called homeobox genes, the genes that are active during embryonic life. So those, that's another new area of research which may offer possibilities for individuals who've lost vision completely. But we have other gene therapies now. If you think about it, we've got 
recessive gene therapy where we use viruses to go into cells and take over the control mechanisms in the cell, but we change the blueprint of the virus. So instead of making the cell die or you sick, it's actually introducing genetic material to replace the defective material that's in your cells. And I think most of you will have read of the RP65 trial at Moorfields, which was the first one in this country, and similar RP65 trial, which is a recessive condition which affects young children and causes blindness very early on. And that's the one that the American Food and Drug Administration has, the panel has given approval. So gene therapy is here. At Oxford, we've got another a couple of gene therapy trials, one for X-linked disease and, and other conditions. Worldwide, there are now more than 700 gene therapy trials. So it's moving. You know, you're very frustrated, I know. Remember, it was only 1953 that we found the structure of DNA and could even begin to think about these things. So that's moving, and that's moving very, very rapidly. And I thought we'd have a real delay before we could even think about treating autosomal dominant conditions. But no, with this new technique, CRISPR-Cas9, we can actually edit genes. So we can actually delete the ones we don't like, or we can take out a chunk. All the material that's good is in the other chromosome, because they are in pairs. And that's really, really so exciting. I can't tell you how um, exciting that is in terms of uh, science, but also in terms of the amount of money coming in. Because the moment the money market sees a potential treatment, they start putting their money in. And so gene therapy has raised over... $320 million in the past two years. So it's a huge amount of money going into gene therapy. Okay, now the other things you will have heard about is stem cells. Now these, unfortunately, well, fortunately in our body, all of us have cells that have lost their way. So normally during embryonic development, cell says, I want to be a liver cell, I want to be a brain cell, I want to be a blood cell, whatever and they're targeted. But there are a few cells that are really teenagers. What do you want to do? I don't know. Anything. I don't care. Unfortunately, they're sort of stuck in different parts of the body and in the eye and in the skin and in the bloodstream. And so we can take those cells out and say, you are going to be a pigment epithelial cell or you are going to be a light-sensitive cell. And by giving them special sort of chemical treatment, we can convert them into the cells we want them to be and then bring them back into the body. And again, there have been several stem therapy trials. At the moment, they're mainly in humans, they're mainly retinal pigment epithelial transplants, uh, sorry, implants of stem cells. But photoreceptors in stem cells have been utilized in animal studies, particularly in Sweden and in the US. And so that's another area that's really exciting. And two more things. One, the pharmaceutical industry, 
they've been sort of a bit switched off by RP. You know, well, how many people worldwide have this particular gene problem? 30,000? Uh, can't make a business out of that. 100,000? No. I'll stick with cardiovascular disease where I'm dealing with millions. But they're now beginning to see the potential of pharmaceuticals for defeating some of the systems in the eye and the brain. And the big market for pharmaceuticals is Alzheimer's. Um, and my group has come up with one common problem in the brain and the eye. So it's meant that we can begin to switch on the Alzheimer's money into RP. Uh, and again, that is beneficial for all of us because the more money that comes in, the better. And the last thing I want to say is implants. And I think there's a session on implants later this afternoon where we're using electronic devices, little microchips, and putting those in the eye to replace the light-sensitive cells. Now, just one word of warning. Um, you've all heard, I think, of cochlear implants, which gives deaf people the ability to hear back. And they started by putting in 150 electrodes, but people couldn't cope with that. It was just a sort of fuzz, a noise, a blur. And so they reduced it to eight, and people terrific within the speech frequency, and then they've made it slightly larger to give you a little bit more definition. And in the eye world, we, we, we more or less started like that. Initially, we said, okay, well, look, we'll use these chips, and they had 240 degrees of grayscale, like a television set, but many of the people that had them initially said, whoa, I don't really like that. And so some of the companies have backed off and you've got black and white discrimination and I'm a bit happier with that. These are not Steve Austin's bionic eye. They're not that. But they are movement forward and they are science-based advances to help RP sufferers. So just think, we've gone from complete quackery through science to the first approved gene therapy trials, stem cell trials, implant trials, and you will see some pharmacological trials with nanoparticles uh, coming along in the future. It's an exciting time for you. I know you've waited a long, long time. I know every time you come to one of these meetings, we get buzzy, and you say, well, when's it going to help me? Okay, it's at that point now, and it's going to move on. So I'm going to step down now, and you're going to have some more, I think, genetics. Yeah, okay. And then we're going to have a question and answer session afterwards, I think. And the guy dog's gone to sleep. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so um, I have a limited time because the guide dog's now awake and we don't want him to pass wind. Um, <laughs> and I also was told not to follow a talk after uh, John Marshall because I'm never going to be as good as that. Um, so I think I've got the short straw this afternoon. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, so it's a pleasure to be invited to speak to you all today. Uh, my name is Maria Musaji. I'm a consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfields Eye Hospital and Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children, specialising in genetic eye disease. 
I also lead a research team at UCL Institute of Ophthalmology, uh, whereby we are trying to understand how genes cause your diseases and also developing new treatments that we can translate back to you. Um, I do recognize a couple of people in the audience from the London um, uh, RP Fighting Blindness uh, lunch that I spoke at. Um, are, are any of you, did any of you attend the family day in Milton Keynes? Good. Okay, yeah, well, that's okay. So, <laughs> so hopefully not too much overlap then. Um, so I wanted to start, I mean, you, you are all aware of this, but RP Fighting Blindness's vision is to aspire to a world in which people with RP will have access to treatments I will not lose their sight. And I am in full agreement uh, with Professor Marshall in that we are entering that era now. Um, during this talk, I'm going to give you some examples of uh, the basic science research that is leading to new therapies and hopefully in a way that you understand. Um, and then give you a small update on the clinical studies and trials that are available to patients at the moment and explain how you can get involved in that. So um, two, two new therapies that I'm going to focus on today. Um, one is a therapy called nonsense suppression therapy and the other one is called non-viral gene therapy. And the purpose is to develop a um, treatment for all RP-related diseases, and ideally one that can tackle the majority rather than just the few. So nonsense suppression therapy is actually a pharmaceutical, a drug therapy, um, and it's very much based on the type of genetic mutation that occurs in the genes that cause your disease. And actually, up to 70% of genetic diseases caused by this particular type of mutation. And I'm going to explain a little bit more about what that mutation is in a moment. And then non-viral gene therapy is a new alternative form to the traditional viral gene therapy that you've heard of previously. Um, but it's been designed so that we can now accommodate very big genes that couldn't previously be uh, applied to with conventional viral gene therapy and that was the focus of the big Christmas um, challenge that you may have been aware of recently. Uh, you all supported giving funding towards this new um, innovation award that's been supported by RP Fighting Blindness to, to develop a treatment for Usher's syndrome and I will go into that more in a moment as well. So I'm going to start with the drug treatment. So nonsense suppression therapy. Let's start with what a nonsense mutation is. So as you heard, um, we uh, are controlled by our genetic code, which is a string of uh, letters uh, called our DNA, and we have three billion of them. And the DNA um, provide instructions for genes, and we have 20,000 of those. And if we have just one single letter spelling mistake in our gene, it can cause a mutation or a problem that can lead to our disease. And so a nonsense mutation is a single letter change in a gene that actually introduces an abnormal stop signal into your gene. So when your protein-making machinery comes along to read the gene to make the protein in your retina cells, it sees this abnormal stop signal 
and it just stops making the protein. And that's why you don't end up making protein and it, you, it causes disease in your retina, which then degenerates and dies. So after many, many years of studying this area and using various types of drugs, what I found was that there was a group of drugs that could bind to your protein-making machinery, and when it read that abnormal stop signal, it identified a weakness in that recognition process, and it could override that stop signal and essentially introduce the go signal so it could continue making normal functioning protein. And it could do that to the level of about 20% of functioning protein within your cells. And that very much is a, a level which would allow patients with autosomal recessive, which you've heard, disease, to actually improve the health of your cells and either slow or prevent your retinal degeneration. So what we did is we wanted to test this on um, various eye conditions to double check that it worked. Mm -hmm. And I used two different models in the laboratory. One was the patient's own cells. And I will talk to you about how we convert those um, stem cells into uh, uh, skin cells, into retina, uh, stem cells, and then into retina cells in a moment. But we also tested it on animal models. And I work with the zebrafish. And I have zebrafish that actually have uh, the same diseases that you have, that have retinitis pigmentosa, Leber's congenital amaurosis, choroideremia, Usher's syndrome. And so not only can I test it in a cell, but I can test it in an organism that has a nice multi-layered retina similar to humans. It has rods, it has cones, so we can um, test its visual function and actually see if these drugs um, do work. And so we started off by giving our um, fish these drugs. And so I've put um, an image on the screen of a film whereby I have a normal zebrafish around day um, six, and it's swimming around happily. And in the middle, there's a picture of a choroideremia zebrafish fish, which is quite unhappy. It's not moving. It's got very small, dark eyes. Um, it's actually affected the rest of the body because, because of the nature of the genetic mutation in the fish. And then it, there's a fish on the other side which has been treated with uh, one of these drugs. And actually, it looks very much more like a normal fish. Um, it's slender in length, it's wiggling around, its eyes are formed appropriately. And when we look closely at these zebrafish and we looked actually at the cells at the back of the eye, we found that there was a lot of degeneration in the zebrafish with choroideremia, with the disease. But when we treated it with the drugs, again, the eyes looked much healthier. They looked like normal, healthy fish. And that's because these drugs had actually prevented the onset of the retinal degeneration. We then did other experiments looking at levels of cells dying, and we could see, and for those of you can, who can see the, the image on the screen, um, there's a middle panel which has lots of green fluorescence, and that's indicating individual cells at the back of the eye that are dying. But when we give the fish the drug, we can see that there's hardly any cells dying. Again, because it's preventing that degeneration, because it's producing protein that is functioning and making those cells function appropriately in a healthy manner. But zebrafish are fine, you know, they're only, you know, 
adults, adult fish are about three centimeters or an inch long. You know, they are a fish. How similar they are they to humans? Would this therapy work on humans? We don't know. So it's very important to test the human cell models to see if that would have a positive result because that would really give us the evidence to move forwards into translating it to you, our patients. So one of, in, in the last few years, one of the latest technologies that have come out is basically taking either a blood sample or a sample of skin from a patient and converting those um, skin cells into stem cells and that, then converting those stem cells into either retinal pigment epithelium, which is the supportive layer of the retina, or into actual photoreceptors themselves, into early eye cups. Um, so we were able to take advantage of this technology and actually grow the diseased eye tissue in a dish for the first time. Because as you know, it's very difficult to get access to human eyes. We can't just take a bit of your retina and do experiments on that. Um, so I'm now going to show you a video which just explains in, in four or five very easy steps how we do that conversion of skin cells to retina cells. So hopefully this will work. So this is the first sound video coming along. So it's simple, four steps and you can grow a, a retina from a piece of your skin. And the real purpose of that is that we can now test drugs on these models. Um, we can test new therapies. We can understand genes. We can look at pathways, identify, identify new therapeutic targets, better understand your personal disease and give you the right treatment that will work for you. So what we did is we took those cells um, from a choroideremia patient and we grew the retinal pigment epithelial cells and there's a picture on the screen um, for those of you um, who can see that. It like, looks like a cobblestone. And we dosed those cells with these drugs and we measured the levels of protein and the function of those proteins. And what we found that there was a 40 to 50% increase in the protein function following treatment with these drugs in a patient's cells. So, based on the results from our zebrafish and with our patient cell work, we knew we were ready to now translate this to our patients because other groups around the world have also replicated similar studies, not just for choroideremia, but for Usher syndrome, for retinitis pigmentosa caused by RP2 or MERT-TK genes, and also for Leber's congenital amaurosis. 
But before we can go to a clinical trial, what we need to do is make sure that we can assess you as an individual appropriately so that when we give you a drug treatment, we will be able to see if the drug has worked successfully. Now, this is a bit more tricky with, um, with this type of treatment. Because it is a drug treatment, it's given to you, it's, a, it's actually a powder, and you dissolve it in some water and you drink it, and you have to drink it every day. The drug is very safe. It's actually gone through phase three clinical trials for other conditions like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It's been given approval by NICE. The name of the drug is Translana, um, or the other alternative name is Atalurin in the US. But it's been given NICE approval for the treatment of the muscular dystrophies in this, in this country. It has a license to be used on children as young as two years old. It's very safe. The side effects noted are just transient diarrhea or nausea when you first start the treatment, otherwise nothing more than on the back of a paracetamol packet. But the problem is it is a drug treatment. So that means when you take this, it's going to, it's going to reach both your eyes. So unlike with the viral gene therapy where you injected one eye and you used the other eye as a control, we won't have that luxury. That means that we have to monitor you now in natural history studies to work out what is going to be the best indicator of a change, either an improvement in your vision or your visual field or your color vision or the structure of the back of your eye. That is going to show a difference after a year's worth of treatment because what you don't want to do is rush to a trial and then you don't have the right measures and then you can't say that the drug has worked well or not. So that's what we're doing at the moment. We're doing natural history studies where we're studying you in great depth. So those days of those flashes and flickers are back, I'm afraid. But we just have better high-tech machinery now. And we have machines that allow us to look at the resolution of the cells at the back of your retina, something called adaptive optics. And we can now actually focus on an area of diseased retina we can take images of that and we can test the function of those cells and we can go back to exactly the same place six months later, a year later, and see if there's been a change. So that's what we're doing at the moment. So if, if there are any of you in the audience who know your genetic result, you have choroideremia or you have retinitis pigmentosa caused by um, Usher2A or you have um, a mutation in Myo7A, please do get in touch. Very happy to check your mutation to see if you're eligible and recruit you into these studies. So I'm going to move on to the next uh, new uh, alternative treatment that is coming on to the horizon. So before I move on to that, I'm going to give you a bit of background about viral gene therapy. Now, there is no disrespect to viral gene therapy whatsoever. It is a fantastic treatment. It is, for the first time, going to be hopefully licensed in the UK by NICE. It's going through the procedure at the moment um, to see if they will fund the treatment, the first gene therapy treatment on the NHS for RPE 65 patients. But the limit, the limitation of viral gene therapy is that it can only hold a gene that is less than 9,000 letters long. And unfortunately, there are a number of genes that are much bigger than that. For example, 
um, Usher 2A, which is the commonest cause of type 2 ushers and one of the biggest causes of um, uh, retinitis pigmentosa autosomal recessive because that's 19,000 letters long. So Usher 2A is not going to fit into your conventional viral gene therapy. Neither is a gene like ABCA4, which causes um, Stargardt's disease or Conrod dystrophies. So we need to think of alternative approaches. There have been some risks reported with viral gene therapy in other conditions previously. Firstly, that the virus integrates into your actual DNA, into your genetic code, and therefore runs the risk of introducing unwanted mutations. Because it is a virus, it has been thought to trigger an immune reaction, just as you would do if you were infected by the common cold virus. So if you go for gene therapy, you are given steroids to dampen down your immune system so you don't respond to those viruses. And, and there have been reports, even with the first RP65 gene therapy trial that was started in 2008 at, in the UK at the Institute, where we injected the vector into one eye, but sadly after a year it stopped working, and so there was no difference between the untreated and the treated eye. And so we had to go back and redesign vectors that were better, and they are now in clinical trials now. So. It's very important for your patient choice and for moving forwards with treatments that we think of alternative approaches. In the future, it may be a combination treatment of drugs and viruses or stem cells and drugs, or it just may, may be that you don't want an operation, you'd prefer a drug treatment, but you need the same choices that those cardiovascular patients have in terms of what types of drugs are best for you or, or treatments. And so one way around tackling the big issue of having big genes moving into gene therapy trials is a new vector system. So non-viral gene therapy, um, it can hold genes of unlimited size. And currently the largest gene that has been inserted into this vector is 135,000 letters long. And that far exceeds so far any of the um, eye-related genes that we have um, discovered. And so we know safely that Usher2A, GPR98 genes, which also causes type 2 ushers, ABCA4, they will all comfortably fit into this viral vector. The other great thing about this vector is that it's composed of human elements. So there are no viral components, and so you won't have that immune reaction, and it won't integrate into your DNA. We use a special region of our own DNA called a scaffold matrix attachment region, which has the ability to fold our own DNA into an appropriate structure. And when we take that component and we put this into our vector system, it allows that vector to enter into a cell and sit alongside your normal DNA and replicate itself. It also prevents the cell from switching off the vector, which used to be a problem with the other old style of, of non-viral gene therapy vectors. And the other great thing about it is if you did have a cell that replicated, it would replicate with it which means you wouldn't have to necessarily keep giving top-up treatments. 
So these are some very preliminary results. A few years back, we started to just to work with the vector system, and we gave some injections into mice, just a single injection into the retina, just as you would do with viral gene therapy. And I'm showing a picture where there's quite a lot of green scattering across um, the retina. And that's actually showing that after a week of following the injection, we get nice expression of the genes in the retina, in the area of the injection. We had this lovely system where we could inject a mouse eye and follow that one mouse over a long period of time. And we could see if the vector was still expressing the gene over that period of time. And what we found that after a single injection into a mouse eye, you can still see expression of that gene after one year, which was promising and equivalent to viral gene therapy vectors. We then also took the eye of the mice and we looked at where the gene was being expressed and we found that it was expressed in the area we wanted it to be expressed in, in our photoreceptors, our rods and cones, and within the retinal pigment epithelium. So it's reaching the right layers. So based on all this evidence, RP Fighting Blindness, as I said, has kindly awarded us the RP Innovation Research Grant this year, and we are now going to apply this non-viral gene, uh, non gene therapy delivery system for USHA2A. And we're going to use that as a prototype to see if it works. If it works, and it works well, not only can we start to begin the process of translating it to patients, but we may also be able to integrate all the other genes into this vector system as a safer, possibly as effective or more effective form of gene therapy compared to viral vectors. So before I end, I want to just touch on some of the current trials that are going on for RP um, at Moorfields and across the country. So I mentioned the gene therapy trial for RPE65 that transiently it stopped working. That was the 2008 trial that has been redesigned that vector and the first patient was injected in May 2016 and that trial is open and currently recruiting patients who are three years and older. Bearing in mind that trial is underway, we may be getting a nice approved treatment for the same gene in the new year. So you must watch this space. There is a gene therapy trial underway at Moorfields for achromatopsia. For those of you who have mutations in the CNGB3 gene, that trial is currently recruiting at the moment. And then in Manchester and in Oxford, we have a gene therapy trial for RPGR X-linked RP, which is run by Robert McLaren. And he is also running a gene therapy trial for choroideremia based at Moorfields and Oxford. And both of those trials are also recruiting patients. So one question that I commonly get from these meetings is, I go and see my doctor and they don't tell me anything about the latest research. How can we find out what's going on? So there is a website called clinicaltrials.gov that you can all just log on to. So www.clinicaltrials.gov, and if you go to that website or get a friend or family to go to that website, there will be a box on that page which says, search for your study. 
And you can either type in retinitis pigmentosa or the specific name of your condition, whether it be choroideremia, Stargardt's, etc. Or if you know the gene that causes your condition, you can put that in too. You can write ABCA4, for example, and just press enter. And that will actually generate all the studies across the world that are related to your condition. And it will come up with stem cell treatments, the retinal prosthesis, natural history studies, gene therapy trials, you name it. And you can click on each one, you can get details. It will tell you where that trial's running. It will tell you the eligibility criteria. It will tell you the contact details of who you should contact to ask if you could enter into that trial if you're interested. So that's something that you can do yourselves. How can you help or get involved? Well, if you first of all have any questions at all after my talk, I'll be here to answer questions. But if you want to email me, I have, I think, managed to answer all the questions from um, the London group meeting, because um, that would have been embarrassing coming here and not have done that yet. Um, but please email me on maria.musaji at moorefields.nhsuk. And if you didn't get that or you need it again, please ask Denise. I'm sure she will be happy to forward you my details. If you do have your genetic diagnosis and you want to know what type of mutation you have, then equally, just get in touch. If you want to enter a natural history study. But one thing I hope that you take home from this is that knowing your genetic mutation is key now. If you don't know it, you need to push for it. That's the key, knowing the gene that causes your condition. We are trying to identify treatments that will work for the majority of you. We have ideas about common pathways, but still knowing your gene and knowing your mutation is going to put you in good stead to become eligible for a lot of these studies. So before I end, I have one last video I want to play, and then it's question time. Um, and I played it at the family day, but I thought I would play it because it, it just it reiterates the the talk and the research that I gave, but it's, it's filmed from a patient who partook in a research study, and it won a national prize last year, um, the National Institute of Health Research Communicating Research Prize, which was judged by the general public in restaurants and cinemas across the country against 30 other um, disease conditions that affected the rest of your body, breast cancer, knee replacements, heart disease. And the public voted that research into genetic eye disease was important. And winning this prize actually shows that they understand how important it is that we work to find a treatment for you. When I was 15 years old, the first Mm-hmm. 
Chapman is a skin sample, where it can grow skin cells, easy cell size, and manage mushroom size. To manage the response to really advanced. If you test enough cells, then the response can grow to the compound. Maria is now moving to clinical trials and showing more patients involved. It's exciting that this treatment might help to go on the main treatment. Maria really is nice to see the sense of her research. She's been really more time to play for the future. Before I got involved, I had no idea I was working with anyone. This new research has the potential to help many readers with where they can be treated. The future is just so much more positive now, and it's exciting to see where this new treatment will lead us. Sorry, can you just wait until I bring the mic round and that way it gets... This way nobody misses the question, thank you. Um, I have been to Moorfields and I, and I understand that I have RP1. So I did have the blood test and they were able to tell me which RP I have and I understand I have RP1. And I was there in July and... I heard background talk about zebrafish and that sort of thing and um, Professor Andrews said that when there were trials I would be notified and hopefully that that would be within the next two years but it actually sounds based on what Maria was saying that those trials have already started. Is, is that right or is it a different trial? Is this working? Yeah. Is this working? Oh yeah, okay good. Um, for RP1 there isn't a trial yet. Um, actually, myself and Andrew have been talking about um, starting work on this because it's autosomal dominant. Uh, it has a slightly different um, disease-causing pattern than the sort of traditional autosomal recessive. This, we think that this drug treatment will work, but in a very convoluted way, in that the, the disease gene is causing... Well, it's only the... It's, it's, it's causing a build-up of the toxic product. And if we can change the mutation so it's not actually causing that build-up, it may help you. But the basic research hasn't been done yet. But I think... You know, this field is moving so quickly, yeah. and the CRISPR technique yes. is another technique that may be helpful, because this in autosomal dominant 
we can actually cut, as it were with micro scissors, we can actually cut out the defect. The other chromosome is perfectly okay, and so by cutting out the defect, um, we have a treatment. We don't have to put anything in in this case. And mm. clinical trials on CRISPR are probably going to start in China early in the new year, uh, but it'll be some time before the retinal treatments uh, uh, come forward. But again, it's a great time. You know, RP is a horrible thing to have, but if you have to have it, the, this century is the year when it's going to uh, see its uh, comeuppance. I have to just emphasize one more thing, um, and that's that in an ideal world, we would love to be working on all these conditions at the same time, but the big limiting factor is funding. Um, we do struggle, so, you know, we are very grateful, but to, to for example, RP fighting blindness for supporting ushers, but, for example, to move on to RP1, it's the same issue. There is this, this competition that we, we live in that we have to pitch for money to work on your condition and, and that's the rate limiting step in, my, in you know but if we prove that it works with these other conditions it may be that applying it to the others is a faster process that's the great benefit of this and just to re-emphasize that <laughs> even when we've done the research we have to get through the regulatory element and for one very simple treatment trial that I was involved in in the US for, again, for changing the focusing power of the eye, it took seven years and cost us $72 million not to do the trials, not to do the science, but get the thing through the regulatory agencies. So it, it, our sponsor is doing a great job. <laughs> Questions? Yes? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure. I was diagnosed um, in 2010 with RP, and when I was diagnosed at the hospital, I was then given a blood test to do the... I saw a genetic cancer, this is at the John Radcliffe. Um, but I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong, I'm going to have to check, but they haven't found my gene. Is that... Would that happen? Yep. So if they haven't found... That's not uncommon. Okay. So um, from... The, there are many levels of genetic testing you can have. Um, we still use something called a gene panel, which is where, for example, there are about 240 genes that are known to cause retinal dystrophies in patients. So we can screen those panels for genetic mutations, but around 60% of patients will get a diagnosis from that, 40% won't. So for those of you who've given a test and you never had a result, there is now the opportunity, and I would say to you to act quickly, because we have something called the 100,000 Genome Project underway, and that's going to last till September 2018. And it allows us to take advantage of the most high-tech genetic test ever available, where we sequence all 3 billion letters of your genetic code, all 20,000 genes, not just the 240. Um, if we don't find a result from that, the genetic data is banked so that people like myself can go and mine that data. We can have access to it. 
in the future, you are all going to have that type of test. Not, not if you've got your result, but, for example, a child born who, you know, actually, from, from probably when you're born, you're probably going to have that test done. Um, we're moving towards genomic medicine, where, for your lifetime, doctors will be able to check your genetic code and deliver treatments that are effective to you or find out your risk factors for disease and therefore intervene earlier. But if any of you are sitting there who've given a blood sample and haven't had a result yet and you're concerned, get in contact with me. We can chase up with John Radcliffe's laboratory. If they agree there was no result, we can recruit you into the 100,000. Or if a result is sitting there that hasn't ever got back to you, we can find that for you. And that is a common issue. We have lots of patients who gave blood in the 70s and 80s and haven't heard anything, and so we've been encouraging them to go back and... Uh... So it's the best place to get a genetics. Is it best to go back there? And do you have to go through your GP? Because I can never get old with my GP. <laughs> okay. So if you've been to Moorfields before, that means you have a hospital number. Yeah. Well, then, if you've got a hospital number, we can sort that out for you. If you just send me an email, and we can recruit you into the 100,000 Genome Project. If you have never been to Moorfields and you want to come, unfortunately, you do just need a GP referral letter. And, and that's called ophthalmopoly. <laughs> you may get it, and it may take a little time. And you've got the genetic code and the postcode. Mm. But if you ask your GP to refer to, specifically to me or Andrew Webster, then it, it will get to us. If you want to be seen sooner, probably me, because Andrew is quite busy. Agreed. <laughs> so. okay. Any other questions? Thank you. Uh, th thanks for the talks. Um, you say about recruiting us onto the 100,000 Genome Project, should we be checking if we already are on it, if we're not certain? Yeah, so again, all of these questions, if you're not sure, I mean, it's a bit of a process, the 100,000 genome. It's not something you'd forget because it takes about an hour to consent you for it. Um, <laughs> um, but if you have the query, if you just send me a little email, we can check that for you. Thank you. And just to let you know that one of these tests per individual costs around £1,000. So that's why I say the Department of Health is funding this at the moment till 2018. Let's take advantage of David Cameron's pocket. <laughs> Anybody else? Looks like we're all done. Okay, thank you. I, I think it's just about perfect timing, actually, for, uh, for stopping for a break. I'd just like to say a huge thank you to John and Maria again for giving up their time this afternoon. Can you all hear me there? Or is, yes? Right down the back? No nodding? Yes, okay. Um, my name's Lyndon de Cruz. I'm a retinal surgeon at Moorfields Eye Hospital and was involved with the original trial that started back uh, in 2008 
with someone who's sitting, I see there in the third row, uh, John Thomas, who you may have uh, in, uh, talked to or been introduced to. And I want to try, and there are no slides, just so you know, and uh, I will go through various parts, uh, generally about the devices, their development, where we're up to, and what the future may bring. Do you want me to close that? The, some of you may know about the devices and the development of them, but just in general, the, the program kicked off in the United States probably 30 years ago as a research program, and the first clinical device that was created was called, as you might guess, the Argus One, uh, a device that had 16 uh, pixels or 16 electrodes and went into six patients uh, and some of those and that of course preceded the Argus 2 trial and some of those patients still have the devices uh, in their eye and at least some of the electrodes functioning. It went on to the Argus 2 device, the device that some of you would be familiar with and what I would talk mainly about uh, today and this afternoon. And the Argus 2 device differed in that it had more electrodes or more uh, pixel elements, and it was 60, it was a grid of 10 by 6. In the trial, unlike the Argus 1, which had 6 patients, there were 30 patients in what was called the feasibility study. And that device went on to get regulatory permission uh, in the United States and for Europe. And subsequent to that, possibly over 200 cases have been done in various countries around the world. So that's a little bit of a background of where things are up to and the time frame. So it's taken about 30 years or just over 30 years to get from what would have been a relatively basic research program to a device which has been put into more than 200 people. The trial I was involved with was called a feasibility study, a study that looks at whether the device works. It wasn't aimed at that time as a licensing study. And I think at this point, before I say the word device many more times, I just want to go through what it is that, uh, for those who are not familiar uh, with what it involves, there are three parts to it. There's a pair of video glasses, and it's the video camera that actually sees whatever it is you direct it at. There's a device inside the eye, which we sometimes refer to as the implant. And that device has an electrode panel with the 60 electrodes and a receiver because the signal from the video camera is sent wirelessly to the device inside the eye. So something's got to receive the signal, which tells the electrodes whether to be on or off. And the electrodes stimulate the residual retina in the eye. And the third component is a computer, a little bit larger than a conventional pack of cigarettes. And this is what converts the signal from a video camera input to a pixelated picture to be drawn, as it were, on the 60 electrodes. And so the way the device works at is you direct the video camera to what it is that's in the visual space it converts that visual space into a series of electrical points and it transfers wirelessly that 
happen to the receiver inside the eye which stimulates the eye. And it keeps, of course, replenishing that in real time. So as you move ahead and move the direction of the camera, it gives a different set of signals to the device. So that's how it works. Video camera is the input. You don't use the normal focusing apparatus of the eye. You put the, uh, the video camera signal is converted by a small computer which you wear around, which is battery operated. And then that signal which is converted to a series of on-off signals for an electro panel is transferred to the electrodes in your eye which stimulate or don't stimulate on or off uh, the residual retina in the eye. So that's how it works. And the original feasibility study looked at two things. One is whether that theory which I've just expanded to you works, and that is in a mechanical or engineering way, and whether it was safe. Because of course, if you have to do the surgery to implant a device, and you've got an electronic device which interfaces with a human eye, and in this case, a retina, which is partly damaged, uh, and you want it to work for a long period of time, you have to answer these questions, and certainly the regulators were interested in that. And the long and short of it is it got the regulatory permission because it did work in the sense that it stimulated the retina and people were able to perceive some sort of light phenomena that they could interpret as either form or lights going on and off or position of an object. So this was the coarsest way that we could find whether it works. And we compared it to the device being off, because this of course is a device that you can turn on and off. And so the person would do a series of tasks and then find out whether it gave any visual information that could be interpreted in some way. Now this is a very coarse understanding of function. It was just whether the device worked. Feasibility study tells us whether the device does what it's supposed to do. The second thing was about safety, and therefore we could put it in people and it would function safely. That is, the surgery wouldn't cause a lot of damage, there wouldn't be a lot of infections, retinal detachments, pain, problems with the eye. And once again, because it went through a regulatory panel, they felt it was safe for its purpose. We did have infections. In the first 30 cases, we had three what we call serious infections. They were treated, but nonetheless we got infections. There were retinal detachments in two cases, and these were dealt with as well. And neither, none of these things affected the function. Nonetheless, these were considered serious uh, complications as they would in any surgery, so they, they, they were noted, it wasn't that it was totally safe and trouble-free. Uh, some of the devices were explanted, mainly because part of the device on the eye became exposed, and because of the potential infection risk, it was felt that it was safer to remove the device than to leave it in. And some of the devices stopped functioning because the connection, either through the wireless signal or the wires and electrodes themselves, stop working optimally, so we couldn't get a signal into the eye. But on the whole, in terms of uh, long-term activity, that is just some form of visual perception from a stimulus, we've probably got about 22, 23 devices, that sort of number, working out on average seven to 10 years after the devices were, were put in. And so what we had was a device which mechanically did what the research suggested it would, stimulate the retina, it would generate some sort of visual phenomenon, and that visual phenomenon could be interpreted various ways, 
and these turned out to be fairly crude ways, but it would allow you to identify where something might be, and in some of the patients who had better perceptions, some form of what was there, and that it would work for many years, and that it was safe in the sense that the regulators felt it was safe to take it to a regulatory panel and give it some form of regulatory permission. So that gives you a background of the devices in general, what was done to get them to the state it is now, and I guess to take it to the point we are now in Britain, that the NHS England via NICE have put forward that there is a further study to be done within the auspices of the NHS. And you might say, well, if it's got regulatory permission, why do you need to do another study? You just told us about the study which gave regulatory permission. Well, I've highlighted two of the things that the previous study showed could be done. One was that the device worked in a very mechanical way, and two, that it was safe enough to put in into people's eyes and that it would function long-term. But the original feasibility study didn't answer in any useful or powerful way, one, how useful it was to the person who had it in. And the second thing is, if there was a variable usefulness, that is some people found it useful and others didn't, how do you choose before putting it in who might benefit and who may not, because of course for a device which is relatively expensive what you want to do is choose someone who might benefit more and advise someone who will get little use out of it to not, not go ahead with the surgery. And so this trial was a trial really used at finding out whether the device is in fact of use to a patient and in what way and whether that way can be predicted so the people who will get the most benefit out of it might be offered it. So that's why the NHS trial is, has been um, proposed and funded. It's limited, so 10 patients will be implanted in the UK, five in Manchester and five in London, which were the two sites that implanted in the main trial. And the outcome data sets are very different to the feasibility study. So the feasibility study, we did a lot of <coughs> device comparing with it on or off, and the tests that were done were relatively artificial, and therefore we set up tests, not within the laboratory in the sort of science tests with, with test tubes, but that people used to point to squares on a screen for localization. people used to read large letters on a screen for form identification, Slightly more practically, they would be able to reach out to particular objects on a table, but this was a table with a black felt cover and the objects were white, so there was high contrast. Uh, and so these, these tests, although they could clearly show us that the device gave visual input to allow someone to do a task, those tasks didn't necessarily reflect tasks that people might do in their day-to-day -day life. And therefore, the NICE review felt that the piece of information that was missing still from the data set was whether this was a useful device, and if it was, so there are two steps, who was it most useful for and could we select it? And that is the primary aim of the extension trial. The people who will go into the trial have a very similar profile to the feasibility study, mainly because this is an extension of a, an already regulated device. So people have 
retinitis pigmentosa, they have what we call profound vision loss. So uh, light perception, bare light perception, rather than form vision. Uh, and that they don't have any other major sensory uh, loss to go along with the vision loss. So a very similar group to, to the group we operated on and investigated in the feasibility study. But the outcome data set is what is completely different and it will be dominated by um, non-scripted and non-specific interviews with patients specifically about use, usefulness and their impressions of how much it changes uh, their lives, if it does at all, uh, and in what way. So this can be interpreted in some structured way to draw conclusions about whether it's useful at all and whether the usefulness can be identified and therefore a selection of who will do better can be made. So that, I thought, was probably the use, most useful summary of where we're up to and how we've got there and what is relevant to the UK setting. The, just in case of, about recruitment, that hasn't started yet, so the trial is still being formulated, so you can't, it's not that I've come here to sign people up or suggest you join, merely to give you information of where the trial is up to in this country and uh, what will become available. We suspect that uh, if it goes through all its uh, regulatory requirements and ethics requirements, that it will possibly start recruiting in the, the middle of next year. So that's sort of the time frame. So I thought that would be useful to, to know, and of course, asking questions at the end is, is the most useful thing, because that'll answer the questions you might want. I just, uh, questions about the future. We already understand, to a certain extent, the limitations of the device. What we want to know is how useful the current device is partly to find out whether it's useful to offer it and for, the, for NICE and the NHS England to find out for them whether it's value for money, uh, but also to guide the future and of course uh, the company and those who've done research in this area before are also interested in developing the device further and you might think and everyone does that there are various things that you might want to do in terms of training and there is an issue about whether more training would make a device more useful or not. And there are issues about both the hardware and software of the device itself. And everyone is keen on more electrodes, just like the phone camera becoming denser and denser, but it's not always immediately the case that that might be the most useful first step. There are other issues as, such as field and the integration with a growing number of digital assistant devices uh, that are coming into play, not, not that Google Glasses will take over, but a lot of information coming in being perceived by either an idea of where you are, so this is a GPS type integration, uh, or to do with various other types of input. So all of these have been mooted, but nothing at the moment has been formalised, and once again, this study will give us information about how useful and where the usefulness was perceived, and this will once again both direct us into the area to move into and where the major deficiencies in the current model are. I think one could talk about lots of specific experiments, one could talk about specific aspects of the current design, but I think at the moment I would take advice as to whether to take some early questions now or to go straight into Andy. I, mean, I, I don't mind either. I mean, maybe if I take some questions now, then Andy will speak and then we can both ask questions 
Hello, Lyndon. I'm Julian Jackson. It's great to hear your talk. Um, I've got two questions, actually. One is about the suitability of patients, which you uh, touched on. Um, a couple of years ago, before I was actually introduced to Argus II, um, which, um, by the way, I think is a brilliant piece of technology, um, uh, my professor down in Southampton took out my cataracts. Um, because I was very keen to get more light into my eyes. I'm completely blind from RP. Uh, he then wrote a letter to another professor who you know well, um, involved in um, retinal implants. He wrote, in fact, to him three times, and he didn't get a response. And the professor who did my cataract surgery said, well, maybe it's because he, can, he just thinks you can see too much. Um, and that really interested me. So that's my first question is, um, what is the debate around um, who is most suitable for these implants? Because I have light, I can navigate around my house. Um, and I'm just wondering whether flashes of light and the ability to reinterpret those is actually better for me than um, sticking with what I have. So that's my first question, Lyndon. <laughs> Yes, this is a question that particularly interests me because we've been trying to, I mean, everything's slow, but slowly formulate a, a, a proposal to do patients earlier. And so there's a few questions that would answer yours, but we don't have the answer for. And they are, is the current limitation of the device we have held back by one, choosing patients who've got poorer vision than we can help? Is it because the training is poor, or is it the device limitation? So there, these are the three areas that we need to answer questions. And if you look at the numbers I've been talking about in the trials, they're very low. And we're integrating first-generation studies with much more complex questions that people would like answered. And what's happened is the feasibility study, which was just a mechanical study to see if the thing actually worked, quickly transformed into a regulatory study and got permission. So it suddenly accelerated straight into being put in patients without what you might think quite an important thing to have been answered on the way. And feasibility studies, classically, the regulators like them being done in patients with extremely poor vision for safety reasons, because there's an unknown safety issue. So I personally think that people who see better when the implant goes in, this is not people who see well, but people who see better, I would personally feel that they are more likely to do better. Now that's speculative, that's not because I know the answer to that, but that would be my feeling, and I would very much like to run a parallel cohort to answer that question. And so that question, which is your question, is unanswered, except in my sense that it would be better to do someone who's slightly early, with a much stronger light perception, perhaps who's just lost form perception but has some field. But this is still speculative. There's no way I can know that that's the case. And if you remember, there, there might be the other two limitations as well. That is to say that it's a training issue or that the device, no matter who you put it in, is just not good enough to offer any benefit. And so there's three things that may limit it, and there's nothing to stop that all three things are a problem. But I don't have data to answer your question, except speculatively, 
that I would very much like to run that cohort because I think from what I've seen uh, that someone who sees better than when they go in will do better with the device. Thank you. And, and just very briefly, my second question is about the trajectory of this technology. Are you essentially trying to get much better at what it currently delivers, or are you, as the press always talk about, you know, trying to create a bionic vision where people actually have acuity? Yes, the, we would love to have that as our next but what we've learned from this is how difficult and how many unanswered questions uh, there are along the way. And so there's issues of we don't fully understand. It comes to now, when we out try to explain the outcomes, we don't fully understand the re reconnections within a retinitis pigmentosa damaged retina. So we don't quite know what we're stimulating. We always use the normal retina as the paradigm. And then we get quite a mix of outcomes. So it draws up a whole lot of things, and these are very complex questions to answer all at the same time. So the route to getting something which we might dream of, which is acuity, quality, uh, uh, retinal prosthesis, and visual uh, prosthesis, uh, is attractive. But along the way, there are all these questions which you've brought up to questions, both of which may take an enormous amount of time and money to not answer. This, this is the problem. So. As a researcher, you sort of have a lifetime of research, and I suspect I'd be very happy if I saw a next generation device in my research lifetime, having been involved with this one for 10, just sort of 12 years now. Uh, and so that would be all of our dreams. So when we have a stem cell project, the project is aimed at reconstructing a normal human retina. This is always what we project. But as you see, it's never fast enough. And in the early stages, which we definitely are still in the process, it's relatively crude. Thank you. I've already found the floor in my question. I just listened to, is it Maria who gave the talk earlier? about the zebrafish and I'm just wondering can I suppose because this is all to do with human interaction with tasks you can't do anything with animal testing who've got visual impairment with doing an electric chip <laughs> um, you possibly could but one you don't know whether it translates and two what's extraordinary about this particular um, study and it's not that there weren't any large animal testings to see if the surgery worked and the device was in a very gross sense on toxic, but it moved into human studies very quickly. Uh, and the more animal studies you do, the more you have to repeat them again. And a zebrafish is very useful because, one, you can have tankfuls of them, and two, they have a very short lifespan, so you can go through all these experiments. Uh, but you can't fit a device into a zebrafish eye. And so what happens is it suddenly becomes large animal experiments, and these are both expensive and ethically hugely complex to do. Uh, and now with this, basic set of data on humans, it's very likely that they will not think that there's a use in going by animals each time you know, with a step forward because there's now quite a large body of data coming out of humans. And so it's very unlikely we'll do, certainly in small animals, which are useful, uh, won't be able to test the devices in the same complex way, especially to answer the question, how useful it is to a person. Zebrafish will never answer the questionnaire. Okay, well, I think that pause is perfect, and I'll hand over to, to Andy, and then, once again, if you've thought of more questions, and we can certainly discuss if you don't particularly want to answer. Oh. Okay. <clears throat>
Sorry, I missed that. I'll get out of the way. Hi. Um, what for you on the, is it Argos 2, is it? You said that's the version that's on. Yes. Like, yes, when, have you thought of the future and what the third one is? Is there a blueprint? Have you got plans? What, what's the next advancement in this technology? Well, the only thing we have is a putative name, which will be Argos 3, I suspect. Um, but in terms of what it might be like, we are waiting in a sense to get some sort of data from the almost 200 cases that have been put in since the feasibility study. And we in fact would be very interested in the input from this uh, CTE run by uh, the NHS to get some sort of information about where the current device is problematic. And so. We don't have a design, is the answer. We have things we feel were important, field, the um, presence of uh, more pixels, the distribution of the field, and improved training schemes in, in sort of broad brush strokes. But in terms of a plan where we could show someone or describe to someone what the third device might look like, except for saying we would like to have advancements in each of these, we don't have that at the moment. I mean, there are lots of groups and discussions and work, and I'm sure the company once again has done this, but at the moment I'm not aware that there's a clear-cut design for the third, <coughs> third, but a very keen interest in developing one. Now we're just going to go on to Andy. Okay. Grab the clicker. I'll grab the clicker. <laughs> clicker there. That's what we're looking for. Okay. Hello, can you all hear me there? Okay, yeah. Um, thank you to Lyndon. Uh, good afternoon to you all. My name's Andy Fisher. I'm a vision rehabilitation specialist or rehabilitation officer by background. Um, I'm also a certified low vision therapist and work in the low vision clinics in the, in the southwest of England with Optima at low vision as well. But also part of my role as an independent contractor working in the vision impairment sector is working with people like Lyndon and the guys uh, from Second Sight actually providing rehabilitation to people that have uh, the Argus 2 as well. It's really interesting listening to Lyndon there doing his uh, technical stuff and all the clinical stuff. And, but there's another side to this, and it's when a person has been implanted with Argus 2 and you switch it on, we've got to teach people to use it, which is where our role comes in. I was going to be joined by one of the patients today from Lancashire, a guy called Keith, Keith Heyman, but unfortunately I understand the weather's not very good in Lancashire today, so he's uh, not here, so you've just got me today. Um, so I'm just going to show you a quick video of, um, of Keith a minute, just if I can get the right button here, just to introduce him to you. Um, we were going to do a, a joint double act, me and Keith, but you've got me today, so... If you, at the end of the session you do an evaluation form, if this goes really, really well, I'm Andy Fisher and this is Lyndon. If it goes really bad, we're both Keith Heyman. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm just going to just show you the quick video. This is about Keith's experience. I think I'm pointing this in the right direction. Where's my technical man? Have <laughs> I pressed the right button? Oh, we're on. All right. <laughs> Okay. 
Hey, that's, uh, that's Keith's story. What they didn't tell you about Keith on that video was that they, he does go to his local pub and one of his personal experiences is about enjoying seeing family and friends when he's socialising in his local pub. Also helps him see his, where the bar is as well because apparently there's lights with mirrors behind the bar that illuminate and Keith, with the system, 
can actually see where the bar is. But the, what they didn't say in the video, it doesn't help him get his wallet out. And, his, <laughs> and it's a standing joke in his local pub. He can see the bar, but he can't see where, or to get his wallet out of, the, out of his pocket. So uh, that's Keith's story. From a rehabilitation side, from a professional side, working with the guys like Lyndon and the other guys from Second Sight who actually have developed Argus, it has it's been a really, really interesting experience for me personally and professionally. As a working rehab officer, normally we work with people that lose their vision and we work with people that in many cases have no vision after losing it, as you may be aware. Um, with Argus, it's a completely different way of working. We were working with many people that have been blind for 15, 20, and in one case, 30 years. And with the system here, with this new technology, it actually gave them back a level of visual function that they hadn't had for a very long time. So for, uh, or from a visual um, rehabilitation perspective, we were actually giving them back some vision and actually coming at the rehab from the other way. And one of the early, um, one of the early factors we really did understand quite quickly was that many of the people that we were working with, and Keith is a, a case in mind here as well, um, they function very well as blind people. They've got the skills, they've got the equipment, they've got the uh, compensatory elements, they're all there. And they know their homes are like the back of their hands, like many people here will understand as well. But what we had to do was switch them back on again. We had to switch them back on to think visually and actually use this new functional vision. And that was a kind of visual memory, and we talk about use of visual memory and visual association when we talk about uh, other factors like mobility uh, in a minute. Lyndon described the system and he described you know, the technical uh, side of it. When a person actually uses the Argus 2, as Lyndon said, they see light, shape and form. Now, all the patients we've worked with here in the UK, they will see light, shape and form, but they will see it differently from each other. It's not the same. Some people will see brighter shapes, some people see just light and just um, different types of form as well. And there's a, an element called persistence as well. And what persistence is, is how long a flash of light will actually last. So some people, for example, will see a light flash that lasts for two, three, and in some cases, four seconds. And other patients that we've got will see it for a split second and it's gone. So persistence is really important and some of our better performers, for lack of a better phrase, will have better persistence. Um, the system will give you an element of light or shape and form centrally in your, in your visual field as well. So it's not visually a very big area. So some of the, uh, the other skills we've got to think about may be bodily skills as well. And again, from a rehab perspective, Teaching orientation and mobility is one of our roles as well. Teaching good posture, good body technique, for example, is really important. So one of the major skills that people need to learn when they have Argus, for example, is how to scan. Now, for many people that have lost their vision for many years, they actually become quite static and you actually lose head movement and your posture may even change as well. But because the camera's fixed and I've got a... Um, a demo version here somewhere here we go um, I'm holding one in my hand now we've got a camera centrally mounted on a pair of glasses now this camera is fixed in the center of the glasses so your head posture your head position and the importance of that head posture and head position is paramount so one of the first factors we had to teach people is how to hold your head up 
have good head posture and learn to scan and actually move your head again. One of the main complaints we had about that was neck ache. People hadn't moved their, their necks for a long time. People are getting muscle ache in their necks and stuff. But actually moving your head and learning to scan, for example, is a really, really important skill that, that people had to, uh, to think about there as well. So when we talk about the rehabilitation programme, the main factors for, for us, again, were based around, for example, visual memory, visual association, remembering what things used to look like, for example, uh, in terms of shape. So, for example, Keith can make out the shape of, a, say, a person's head and body. You will not see detail with artificial vision. It won't enable you to see the outline of, say, people's eyes or whether they're wearing glasses in some cases or a mouth but it will give you the outline shape of a person being sat in front of you as well. Keith mentioned, for example, using the system at home for seeing cups on a table, for example. Again, with good contrast, he was able to make out the, the kind of the general shape of a, a cup, the fact that there was an object there. He might not have known it was a cup, but he knew there was an object on the dark tablecloth as well. So we were teaching him what things looked like, getting to think about his visual memory, about what he used to see, and also as well, visual association. What do things actually look like as well in a certain position? And I'll talk about that in a second when I come back to, to um, when we talk about mobility. Patients' expectations as well are very different. Keith, for example, is a very, very sociable guy. For him, it was about what we would term as social inclusion. For many of the others, it was based around better orientation and mobility. And we've done a lot of work with many of the patients here in the UK, but also in uh, Germany and also in France, for example, about using a cane. So, for example, we are actually making sure people have got good cane skills. We're actually teaching them to use the Argos system as well. And then we're putting the two together and actually helping them function, for example, when they're out on orientation and mobility. Now, for those of you that have had O&M training, as it's known as, you will know from your, from your O&M instructors that you're encouraged to hit things with your cane. Uh, you're, also, if you've got a level of functional vision as well, you're encouraged to look for landmarks and reference points. Now, what we found with the Argus for those people that have got no functional vision at all in a normal situation, with the Argus, it actually enabled us to identify specific landmarks and reference points on a route. Now, we're not suggesting for one minute this is going to replace a cane or guide dog because it isn't going to do that. What we are and have done is actually worked really closely in integrating the use of a cane to give people extra functional vision when they're out on a route, for example. So you can identify, for example, uh, it might be a, a phone box or a shop front or a signboard or some environmental clue that will help you uh, orientate yourself and understand where you are in space as well. Um, also, what the, the system will do, for example, in that situation is help you with your spatial awareness. Really, really important. Help you feel uh, that you're included in your environment and help you orientate yourself in a certain environment when you're outdoors as well. Really important. When people are indoors as well, Keith again is another good example of this. He's got um, a number of windows in his house, for example, and it helps him orientate himself when he's moving around his home. He does know it really well, and he, he can do it without the system, but he functions better and moves more easily when he can actually see the lights on the ceiling and the lights coming through the window, and it benefits him in that way as well. So we are suggesting good cane skills, good mobility skills indoors, 
and hopefully the Argus will give you a little extra and it will uh, enable you to interact with your environment uh, more safely um, and also orientate and find your way around your environment uh, more easily as well. One of the current things we are currently doing, and this is ongoing at the moment, we are doing a project with guide dogs um, through GDBA, Guide Dogs for the Blind Association, uh, where we are looking at integrating the system with the use of a guide dog partnership as well. That's ongoing. We are going shortly, hopefully in the next sort of few weeks or a couple of months at the most, be producing a good practice guide for guide dog mobility instructors. And we are looking at the ways we are training guide dogs and we are going to change things a little bit uh, at basic training for guide dogs to actually incorporate the use of the, the Argos system as well. So watch this space. It will be uh, hopefully uh, new soon, but we are looking at the way we train dogs uh, to take into account artificial uh, vision as well. Really, really important. Um, and the long-term plan for that is to actually develop a training package for guide dog mobility instructors. So they actually provide a better service and better training to the end users, which is a guide dog partnership, basically. That is going to be the plan. Just going back about patient expectations and people expectations, this is really important about managing expectations from a rehabilitation uh, point of view as well. Keith likes to, as I said, likes to see his family and friends. He likes to go to his pub. He's a social guy. He likes to social inclusion things. The other guys have all got different expectations and different objectives as well. So, for example, we've got one guy, in the, another guy in the north of England. Without the system on, he has no perception of light. He is totally blind, can't even see sunshine, nothing at all. With the system on, he can see the lights in his kitchen, he can see the lights in his window, but one of the things that he does like doing, um, which sounds a bit funny today in the north of England, but is sunbathing. He can actually make out the sun and he actually enjoys the effect of actually uh, enabling him to appreciate the light from the sunshine as well. In our terms, that may be a very basic rehabilitation perspective. To him, it's massive, it is really big. Other people, for example, again, coming back to mobility, uh, we're looking at, for example, uh, improving their mobility. We're looking at people going to unfamiliar areas, for example, if they want to, the system will give them that little bit extra as well. So managing expectations is really important. And I think it's important to say as well, we're not gonna return normal vision. And I think most people would say that, but with artificial vision, what we're actually doing is actually enabling people at distance, in some cases when you're outdoors or mobility, three, four metres away to identify an object, identify a reference point and interact with your environment as well. During the video that you saw with Keith there, they were talking about the filters on the system as well. And when Lyndon here has done his, uh, his clinical stuff and all the, the magic the clinicians do, it's over to us on the rehab side to help people make the best use of this functional vision and actually make the best use of the system here as well. I've got the system in my hand at the moment, I've got the glasses in my right hand and uh, they are, I think they're supposed to look like Oakleys I believe, I'm not sure how true that is, but um, they haven't got Oakley on the side or anything like that, but um, they're supposed to kind of resemble Oakleys or Ray-Bans or something like that. But I've got what we call the the VPU, the video processing unit here as well. And on the video, Keith talked about a number of filters. Now, these filters are really important in terms of how we use them, where we use them, and also dictate what we see when we do use them as well. 
So when you look at the, the front of the box here, I've got three buttons, one, two, three along the top. Filter one is the normal filter, and what I mean by normal, it's a standard uh, response to standard feedback you're gonna get. So you will see flashes, they're gonna have light, shape, and form. So if you see an object or a person in, in front of you, like I've got some people in front of me here, so you might flash in a certain sort of outline, but around you will be black. You won't see anything around that at all. And that would, might be the normal, the normal filter. Button number two is the high contrast. Now, for those that don't function so well, or for those that have low persistence or need more contrast, filter two is the way to go. Filter two will make my people in front, I was gonna call you object, I won't call you object, so people in front of me, um, they will be brighter. They will appear brighter. The brighter flash will have more shape. We wouldn't have more shape, but it will have a defined shape as well. And many people prefer filter two, but it can be quite bright for some others as well. So we need to manage the filters uh, very carefully uh, when we use them. And also choose when we're going to use them as well, depending on where we are, depending how, for example, how bright the environment is outside. Today is pretty dark and gloomy, isn't it, today? So it probably may be filter two. But on a bright sunny day, where a lot of people get a lot of light in, it may be filter one may be the, the, better, the better filter to use. Filter three is what we call, um, it's, it's basically edging. Um, it's kind of, it shows up borders. Um, so for example, it might show like a door frame or even the defined edge of a, a step or a curb, for example, edge detection. That was a phrase I was looking for. So edge detection, so a defined edge like a defined curb or a door frame, for example, may show up. And it's really useful for identifying specific points of reference. Really, really important if you're doing indoor or outdoor mobility as well. One of the other ones I like about this one, and we use this very often in rehabilitation for certain tasks as well, is reverse polarity. So what that really means in practical terms is we look at light the other way around. So if I look at an object, it's not going to flash on me. What it's going to do is going to look a dark outline and the outside will then appear to me to be lighter. So looking at things in reverse. Now, if people are sensitive to light or they're having trouble making out the shape of an object, for example, if it's too bright, using reverse polarity may be a good way uh, for us to go as well. So in many cases, for example, doing tasks indoors, again, coming back to what Keith was doing in the house, looking at cups, for example, on his table, Using reverse polarity actually was more beneficial in certain cases than using normal polarity as well. So when we're training people to, uh, with the equipment, looking at the filters, looking at how we use them, do we use them in normal mode? Do we use them in reverse mode? Again, really important as well. Also understanding the equipment as well. I mean, Lyndon was talking about the uh, technical side, about the, uh, the antennas, for example, and the transmitters on the side here. If a person loses a signal between the glasses and the inner workings of the, uh, the device, it will bleep. So you know when you've lost your signal. Also, you'll see it as well because you will lose the flashes. So the flashes will stop. So for example, it will tell you it will bleep. So we can turn the bleeping off if you find it annoying. And one of the buttons on the side of the device here is what we call a mute button. And the mute button will turn uh, the, the, the sound off as well. So, when we actually fit a person up with Argus and when we actually start training them, it's not just a matter of popping the glasses on, turning the device on, 
and off we go. You do need to be shown what you're seeing. You'd need to be shown how to interpret what you're seeing and then incorporate that into the task that you're doing, whether it's a daily living skill, for example, or whether it's orientation and mobility. I would suggest to you, well, at the moment, this is giving us a level of functional vision. It's not going to replace a mobility aid. Um, and we're not suggesting for one minute that you can throw your white cane away or retire your guide dog. It's going to work together as a partnership. And I think it's really important that we kind of view it as an additional device that will support uh, people as well. So when we've been looking at this, we have also been looking at the person and also using their previous skills. Many of you might have had uh, rehabilitation before. You might have had uh, certain skills. We're going to use those. You might have had certain visual memories, for example, of the areas where you live. Um, in terms of the technical phrase of that is called mental mapping. So many of you may know the roads around your area, you may know uh, the, the streets, you may know quite a lot about the wider area. We're going to use that as well. And hopefully what we can do with Argus 2 is actually give you more information about that environment and actually incorporate it and use it as part of your vision rehabilitation plan and mobility plan for using uh, the artificial vision system as well. The other benefits that some of the patients have had, again, going back to the guy in the north of England that uh, used to enjoy seeing the sunshine, when we did routes with him, he's lived in the same house for 30 odd years, he was telling me. We did a route down uh, his local road and we actually found landmarks and objects that he didn't even know existed because they were further out than the cane, so the cane wouldn't find them, so he didn't know they existed. With the system, it was, what's that? Uh, oh, something there, what's that? And I told him what it was, he was, never knew that was there. So hopefully it will open up the world in many ways to, to many different people as well in terms of what is around you and open up your immediate world as well. From a professional side, this has been challenging. From, you know, from a rehab side, it's never been done before from a rehabilitation side. I've, as I said, I've been a rehab worker now for over 24 years. I've been in the trade. Um, so I've been a low vision specialist. I used to work down here in Judd Street as a low vision specialist with the RNIB. Um, I've worked with blind veterans where we've worked with guys that have been injured and blinded in World War II right up to Afghanistan. That is challenging work. But this is different as well. And this made us think about what we're doing, about how we do it, and also the objectives and aims and, and the goals about what we're trying to achieve here as well. What is interesting, all the people are very, very different and they all have different goals as well. And um, taking that into account. The one thing I would say though is about how we do rehabilitation and in many cases, it is useful if people have, for example, have had mobility training previously um, in that, and we can incorporate that as well. But if not, we, we can and do uh, provide that backup as well. Some of the initial training will be done in labs like, uh, like Lyndon was saying earlier as well. So it could be uh, initially looking, you look at screens and you do the clinical testing. Then we take that information out and we use it in a person's home as well, because that's really, really important. And I think for many people, they will say to you, it's not about seeing shapes or letters on a screen that's important, it's when they go home. And that is essential as well. So we take the clinical data, the clinical information, and we use it, incorporate into their home life and transfer that as well. Some of the basics, just looking around this room here, and that there's some 
good clues here that we could use, for example, to help orientate people. So, for example, this is a fairly large room here. It's a big, high sort of atrium-type ceiling, but there's lights on the on the ceiling, on the wall. Sorry, up lighters on both sides of the uh, the room here, both left and right. We may be able to use those as orientation devices. Also, as well, there's white lines on the floor here as well. I know that to actually mark out the table, for example, for the projector, and also there's white lines for the, the cables here. Now, from a rehabilitation point of view, we could use all this. This is good training area, this. I'm not suggesting we should come back and do it, Lyndon, but this is good, good training patch. So we can use the environment that we've got. And some people will make out these white lines on the floor below me now, and we could actually use these as tracing lines so people can navigate uh, around the room. It's about using environment, using everything we've got, and the system gives us that. And the important thing that many of them said to me before is something is better than nothing. And I think that is really important because for us as rehabilitation specialists and also as clinicians, we might not think it's a lot. But to the people that have had Argus, in many cases, and Keith said it earlier, a little is definitely better than nothing and gives them a whole new world as well. Um, just one couple of last points just before, because I know... Um, we've got plenty of time for questions for Lyndon as well afterwards, is about retraining, about rethinking about what we do and how we do it. So it could be retraining uh, strategies, it could be changing and amending the way we do things, but in principle, it's going to be the same. All we're doing here is giving people a level of visual function that they haven't had either for a very long time uh, or not at all. So, for example, we're going to just incorporate that and just term it as basic functional vision and give people back that, that chance as well. I've got to admit, the results have been encouraging from a practical sense. They've been really useful. The Guide Dog project is really exciting and hopefully uh, we'll get some good outcomes on that as well and, uh, and look forward to the, the future on that one. But the work will, will continue and we will develop new ways of working. And uh, there's no textbook on this. We've been here before. Um, we've been doing it, but there's no hard and fast ways of doing it. As long as it's safe, as long as it works, as long as the people like it and it benefits them, that's fine for me. I'm encouraged as well, listen to Lyndon, about the technology improving. That will give us more as well. And as the technology improves, I'm sure hopefully we can, with the new rehab programmes as well, that will benefit uh, the end user, which is obviously the person at the end of it as well. I'm going to finish there because it gives us plenty of time for Lyndon to answer any technical questions. I'll be here from the rehab side if needed as well. So uh, thanks for listening and uh, we've got a bit of time for questions uh, if anybody's got any. Yeah. to be taking all the questions. I don't, I don't know why I'm always Oops, sorry, the question. Can you, I can you hear me? Yeah, you're okay, I don't know if it's to Lyndon. Or I don't, what's your name, sorry? Andy. Andy. But um, if you have the chip in the eye, whatever they call it, is it Argos, I think? Yeah, the chip Argos, in the eye. Yes. Um, does over time your visual um, confidence grow? Because at the beginning, I imagine, if you've been blind for, or so severely impaired that your mm. sight, perhaps your memory of it, is bad at zero say does over time over months does it essentially get better because your body gets used to it or your eyes get used to it from 
just just from having the chip in the eye if i didn't like the flashes and i felt like i couldn't work with it does it mean you just need to give it months to really get used to it Do you know that Lyndon? <laughs> i apologize i was fiddling okay. with the microphone oh, i missed you you want to know whether well once it arrives in your eye and you get these flashes and you have to get used to the fact that you've got perhaps a new you know, as you say, the world, the world opens up because you can yeah. see something, yeah. but you're trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Does over time your body and your eyes actually have to get used to and adapt to the fact that you've got this new visual world that wasn't open to you before? Yeah. I think from a rehab, I'll just move on From a rehab perspective, it is about relearning how to use that vision is really important. Um, I've spoken to many people about this initially, and if we don't teach you what those visual flashes actually mean, mean they're not going yeah. to mean anything okay. so um, they will work the system will work it will do what it says on the tin mm. but if you don't understand what it is it isn't going to have any relationship at mm. all to the world around you yeah. and that so but also it's a learning experience for you as well mm. um, and you will it's not going to be an automatic switch on it hey presto exactly. everything's great and wonderful it will be a, a learning curve so people will need to adjust and actually understand, translate and grow with the system. Mm -hmm. But it's, it, is, it is a learning curve that people will go through, yeah, okay. definitely. Do you want to add to that? I was just going to add that uh, I got the sense that it might also be a bit annoying. You can turn it off. Yeah, no, sure. So you're not plagued by the flashing lights until you learn what to do with them. Because I was wondering, I was wondering, oh. Am I on again? I was wondering whether Argos actually has to get used to the system because I feel like this is not a medical thing where you're going to start, your photoreceptor cells are growing. This is more, you've got this alien device, but actually your retina is not going to necessarily get better, but your, I don't know how the brain works, but maybe the device gets I mean, better I, because it gets used to your house. I don't know. <laughs> it, it doesn't learn in the way that you hear a lot of Google things that the device is learning. So the device is fixed. The flashing lights are the same, all things being equal. And as Andy pointed out, what makes it better six months after it went in is how well you've learned to interpret those. So it doesn't actually have a learning capability sure. uh, in terms of what's happening. It, uh, it, it's a question of you interpreting. I did comment before that the idea of it learning is whether we combine it with these new devices where you can get, um, for example, a, a glasses which sees something, interprets it and then says it. For example, it says there is a door, there is a something mm -hmm. or other. Uh, now, this sort of thing can be in, uh, in integrated with it and that device has learned what a door looks like mm -hmm. and what a, a window looks like and a person looks like mm -hmm. and things like that. So, there is an issue of us integrating it with more and more devices such that it becomes a more complex device. But I think straight out, the device itself doesn't get better. It is fixed. And what gets better is you, courtesy of Andy. Can Thank I, you. Can I just add to that a little yeah. bit in terms of the usage? Some people um, we've got on the different programs, even through Europe, some of them wear the system all the time um, and they wear it all day, every day. Other people are a bit more choosy. They wear it when they go out, for example, and they may take it off. And as Lyndon pointed out, if it does become uncomfortable, even switch it off. Exactly. And yeah, that's that's really so good, yeah. it's important to remember that you can manage it how you want to manage it. Yeah. yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. Any other questions? Hi guys, um, 
You mentioned that it works better with some people than others. Some people, the flashes last longer. For example, some people see more, some people less. What influences how well it works with some people versus others? <laughs> Once again, that, that, that's a question we would very much like to answer. Uh, and it requires us analyzing all these patients have had the device in. But at the moment, from what data we've been able to extrapolate, it appears that younger people get more consistent signals and patients who've lost their vision for less time get more consistent signals. This is not absolute hard and fast, but this is the group that seemed to have done better. And what you may surmise from that is that the reorganization of the retina is less disorganized and complex. And so you're putting the device into a more regular retina. And so this is, follows the question beforehand, shouldn't you be putting it in earlier? And the answer is based on younger people and people who've had their vision loss for less time seem to do better, then we would expect that they are predictors, the very first course predictors of who may do well, and also suggests to us that we may want to consider putting it in earlier. But at the moment, that's all we know. We can't exactly say why some people get longer persistence than others, some people get brighter flashes than others, some people electrodes work rather than others. Uh, but this is broadly the group that it works better in. And we suspect that part of it is due to changes in the retina, so the way the retina is organized. And what we're trying to answer in a scientific sense uh, in studies we've been doing at the very beginning now is whether there's also a reorganization in your visual cortex such that even if the retina may work and a signal is going through, there's been a reorganization or disorganization of the visual cortex. So there's too many unanswered questions to know exactly the answer to why some people do better than others. But the coarsest answer is that the people who do better are younger and been, uh, their vision has been lost for less time. Okay, I know you might not be able to answer this question because the technology still is inf infancy, but um, you know something like the six million dollar man, I don't know if you've watched that in the past, that kind of science, how, how many decades do you think something like that is way off? Or is it, is it just Im impossible to answer S some kind of implant that would really restore just full vision? How far is something like that, do you think? I am of the generation that watched Six Million Dollar Man, so I'm in fact surprised that you did. You look, much, you look much younger than I. I'm 36, but I've got older brother and uncle who watched it again in the 90s, Very so I, okay. I saw a bit of it. Th that answers that question. Um, a couple of interesting things. I, for a while, as the opener to my lectures on the bionic eye, played the introduction to the Six Million Dollar Man. And what was interesting is he had an eye, a limb, a heart, an ear, or something, something like that. It matched every single device that's currently in current development that has got to a level where it's in people in general use. So ironically, all the, it was a very prescient uh, series. The question of yours was the similar question to before. Are we aiming to get a fully restored visual acuity? Uh, the short answer is yes, that's what we expect. Is that near? 
Relative to the exper experience of the first generation device, unfortunately no is the clear answer to that. Do I have a punt at how long? Uh, on the grounds that the first step is the hardest one transiting into it, and that took just around 25 years, I think it's still a very, very long way off. What we can't predict is new technologies and new things, but the, the task is very complex, and it reminds us of how fantastic the actual normal functioning retina is. Okay, then, thanks. I was just interested in what you said a moment ago about the difference in the age groups, uh, and you put it down to the orientation of the retina. Is it possible that with time, is the device preventative, or with time, will they deteriorate as well? This is, this is a question we were interested in from the start, on the grounds that an unused nerve degenerates, and a stimulated nerve stays healthy. That's the first premise. And in retinitis pigmentosa, the inner retina is normal. The outer retina, which catches the first light signals and stimulates it, is abnormal. And the question is whether long-term lack of use of the inner retina leads to a second round of degeneration. The, the, what we find is that the first question you asked is about, does it fade with time? We're starting to get the answer given we've got patients now out at 10 years with reasonable, reasonably sustained function. What we don't know is what the control group is. It's no way of stimulating an equal group to see if that group would have degenerated faster. So we can only answer the question partially that the Argus 2 keeps working for at least 10 years. We believe that stimulating the retina keeps it healthier, not in some fantastic way such that it regenerates, but that the fact that it's being stimulated allows it to survive and be stimulated for longer. And the only indication we've had is that 10 years in a degenerating retinal sense is quite a long run where the device still works. But we don't have a comparator, so it could be that the inner retina just stays healthy anyway, so we're not actually keeping it healthier, but at least it's lasted that long. And once again, my speculation, this is speculation on data, is that stimulating it keeps it at least as healthy as it can be. So in a sense, it is preventative. Yes, it's preventative for further degeneration, and this brings us back to the earlier question, then by doing it earlier, do we keep more for longer? And this is a question we would once again love to answer, but don't have a strict answer. But my speculation, based on the first two speculations, is yes. Thanks. Hi, my name's Jonathan. Um, thanks for that. The you say it lasts 10 years you've had in working, so what will happen? Will you be able to replace it at a future stage if, if it stops working? Or is it once in, you can take it out but not put another one in? The, the question has two parts. One is, if it stops working, can we replace it with the same device? And at the moment, our speculation is yes, there's no reason you can't put a second one in having taken the first one out unless the conjunctiva, the surface covering of the eye, is too scarred to put the device in. So ironically it's not a disease or device 
restricted issue. It's a whether you can do the surgery a second time in the same eye. And it's in fact due to scarring of the skin on the surface of the eye. So yes, you can replace the same device if it stops working. The question is, what if a better device comes up? And that's, I'd have to say, not round the corner. Uh, what if a better device comes up? Would we take it out and replace it? Or would we put it into the other eye? That's something that we would discuss with, I guess, user groups and the regulators to find out. And I would speculate, or speculation, that it probably would be better to put it in the other eye to get the answer that it works than to take out a device and put it back in. And then the second question, as the, you say the Argos 3 is probably a, a way off, with the fact that you've got exterior technology being used as well, do you think that as technology improves you'll be able to improve what people who have the implant have in them to be able to do? Uh, yes, it's additive. So Andy pointed out that when he walked with someone, they would say, what's that? And he would tell them what it was, and then they would say, oh, I didn't know that was there, which requires Andy. If you had a device which was a video camera and a software that interprets whatever it is and then tells you what it is, for example, it's a dog, it's a tree, but it did it with an auditory signal and you got a flash or some sense of form on your glasses, this would be a combined device which allowed you to identify a flash or an object and something else to name it without Andy being there. This is what I meant by integrating currently advancing external technology with the glasses. I don't think it would somehow go into the glasses and stimulate in a different way. You, you could speculate that it projects a generic form of a dog on your retina and you perceive it, but this wouldn't be the device giving you the form then. This would be a semi-false representation. Thank you. Thank you very much um, to Professor de Cruz for that and Andy Fisher as well. A really interesting workshop. Uh, we're just going to do our closing remarks shortly, so if you're all all right just to, to stay where you are for the moment, um, and then uh, we'll let you all be on your way. Thanks very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed your day with us. Thank you very much for seeing it through to the end. And I'd just like to say a big thank you to Professor Lyndon de Cruz and Andy uh, for your talk. Thank you very much for coming along, giving up your time to, to do a workshop for us. I hope you found it extremely informative. And also thank you to Alexa, who's done the employment workshop next door. 
I'd also just like to thank my colleagues at RP Fighting Blindness. There's a, there's still, uh, the, the ladies are still at the back on the stand. Uh, so I'd just like to say thank you, ladies, um, for being around to lend a helping hand and give you any information that you've been looking for. And to the rest of our exhibitors, um, hopefully you've had a chance to go over and, and try some of the glasses and the tech equipment that we've had here. Um, and I hope you've had a really enjoyable, informative day and an opportunity to learn something new and to chat to each other and, and maybe share some hints and tips as well. Please do keep in touch with us. We run these events from time to time. We certainly always have our annual conference here in London and we'd love to see you again. Uh, so please do check our website. If you are not on our mailing list and you would like to go on our mailing list either to receive our magazine or our monthly um, email update, Either see Claire on the way out, she's still at the re registration desk, or please just give the office a call and we're happy to take your details and, and make sure you go on our list. Finally, somebody has left a very nice brolly on the reception desk. It's a pale blue brolly with puffins on it. Someone I've got, <laughs> someone's claimed it, lovely. I was going to say, I huge thank you to all of you and if you wouldn't mind just before you go if you could um, leave your fill in your feedback forms and leave them with Claire on the reception desk because we really